From the White House in Washington, D.C., CBS Radio presents an informal address by President Dwight D. Eisenhower. He will speak on the problems and concerns of all Americans in this atomic age. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. Good evening, my friends. This evening, I want to talk to you about a very big subject. I want to talk to you about this great country of ours, I should like to ask you with me to make a quick survey of its strengths, its problems, its apprehensions, and its future. Particularly, I'd like to talk to you about what you and I can do about its future. Now, if we first take a look at the strength of America. As the United States entered April 1954 with the Cold War at its height, Congress and the President authorized the founding of the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado. Walt Disney was signing a contract with ABC TV for a Disneyland series. There were plans to build a new theme park in Southern California. Legendary conductor Arturo Toscanini was retiring as Elvis Presley was recording his debut single, That's All Right. The hydrogen bomb now existed. Brown versus the Board of Education was being decided. A certain senator from Wisconsin was claiming the armed forces were rife with communist spies, and there was worry about involvement in present-day Vietnam. On April 4th, Dwight Eisenhower gave this speech on fear. We hold that all men are endowed by their creator with certain rights. Three days later, he unveiled his domino theory, portending that for every country who fell under communism's grip, more were likely to follow. However, it was no secret that Eisenhower didn't see eye to eye with Senator McCarthy, and the former Supreme Commander of World War II's Allied forces understood how internal division could make a country vulnerable. That was the same in the radio industry, where those who could find work in TV were doing so with rapidity. Of the top 15 TV shows, at least nine had begun on radio in some form. For example, the things that were stated in the Bill of Rights. This included Dragnet, Arthur Godfrey, The Life of Riley, Our Miss Brooks, This Is Your Life, and The Jack the Benny Show. His right to worship as he pleases and think as he pleases and talk as he pleases. But American so forefather God Alexander God. Hamilton once said that in times of great chaos, people can make the their name. Of the spiritual strength we need today that was never truer than in the spring of 1954. The same stamina... Of course, as Joseph McCarthy would find out, people who create great chaos can at times lose theirs. I want to call your attention to this particular part of the American strength. Tonight, we'll find out more. Everything else goes by the board. We must be strong in our dedication and our devotion to America. That is the first element of our entire strength. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 126. My name is James Scully. Tonight, we continue our 1954 miniseries by picking up in April as McCarthy's army hearings get underway. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series 
on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening song is the Mondo Exotica Voodoo Dreams by Les Baxter. He came straight out of tonight's era. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. Granny's Abner, I believe that's our ring. I dog Islam, I believe you're right. I'll see. Hello, John M. Downstore. This is Lumman Abner. In April 1954, Lumman Abner was airing as a weekday 15-minute serial. The show was syndicated out of KABC in Los Angeles. That year, the American Broadcasting Company's flagship LA station had changed its call letters from KECA. Chester Locke was Lum Edwards. Norris Goff was Abner Peabody. Although the comedy was reaching the end of the line, it was still one of the most beloved folksy radio shows of all time. On this day, Lum found out he'd need famous ancestors if he wanted to marry Miss Priddle, while Abner set up a prank. Oh, this'll be the biggest April Fool joke I ever played on anybody my whole life, Granddad. Yeah, I wouldn't do it for you, Abner. No, I made up my mind. Maybe it'll make Lum realize he's supposed to be running a store here. Get some of them get-rich-quick ideas out of his head. He's just wasting his time trying to invent something. Just the same, I don't believe Lum deserves a thing like this. Grandpap, I just want him to settle down for a while. Now, get on back to feed him. You'll know about when the right time comes to go around and come in the front door. I'll get him good mad first. <laughs> How are you going to get him on the subject? I know you can get a feller off the subject easy enough, all right. I'll get him on the subject. I've been studying up some ways to do this for quite a spell. I believe April Fool's Day is about the best way to work it. Now, get on back there. Lum's coming up the steps out there right now. All right. I guess you know what you're doing. Well, he'd do the same thing to me, Grandpap. I know he would. Now, stay out of sight. Well, morning, Lum. Er, afternoon. Uh, howdy, Abner. What do you mean, afternoon? Oh, that's right. Still morning, ain't he? Did you have a nice time last night? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I always enjoy myself when I'm with Penelope. Well? She lives with her Aunt Agatha there at the county seat, you know. Y- you told me, yeah. yeah. We had supper over there and spent the evening talking. Well, Aunt Agatha's a nice woman, huh? Oh, yeah, a real fine woman. Good for her. Awful proud, though. She don't want no bums in her house, I'll tell you that. What'd you do, sit out on the porch all evening? Don't try to be funny, Abner. What I'm trying to get at is, if I can't prove I've got a whole bunch of important ancestors, Aunt Agatha won't ever let me and Penelope get married. I know that. She won't, huh? Fact is, I believe that's why they invited me over to their place last night. Thought they invited you over there for supper. Well, they did, but I believe the supper part of it was just a decoy. Well, what'd you do? 
Uh, I said, I believe there was another reason for inviting me over there. The supper part was a decoy. That's what I thought you said. Well, you must have been pretty miserable sitting there trying to make a meal out of a wooden duck. I never said we had a wooden duck for supper. You did, too. You stood right there and told me they served a decoy for dinner. Oh, for goodness sake. Of course, sake. I reckon it'd come in handy in a way, though. You could use the splinters for toothpicks. <laughs> what, they stuff the duck with sawdust? <laughs> well, cut it out, Emma. That ain't funny to me. Oh, no. I'm just trying to explain something to you, and I don't believe you've got the least idea what I'm talking about. You said Aunt Agatha was awful proud. And she is. I've sure got to make an impression on her. I ain't got a chance with Penelope. Well, didn't you fib to her and tell her what a big successful inventor you are? Well, it wasn't exactly fibbing. Ah. I am working on some inventions, you know. Oh, yeah. I noticed how hard she's working yesterday morning. Sat there for two hours watching the tea kettle boiling. I was just doing what other great inventors has done. Oh, Lord. Well, that's the way James Watt invented the steam engine, by just watching a tea kettle boiling on the stove. James who? Watt. I said James who? And I said Watt. James Watt. He invented the steam engine as what? I'm trying to find out what his name is. Told me his first name is James. What's his last name? That's right. What's his last name? Who? It's one too goodness, Admiral. If you don't hatch up, I'm going to whop you right over the head. I didn't mean nothing. You see, Aunt Agatha's awful proud of her lineage. Huh? She's a descendant of Alexander Hamilton on her father's side, and she's got John Adams' blood in her, I know. Wow. Oh, her family's all cluttered up with United States presidents. Hmm. One of her uncles is a relate of Monroe by marriage. One of the, the Maggio boys? No, for goodness sakes, I don't mean that Monroe. You ought to see the family album she's got. I bound you that things are foot thick and just crammed with folks that signed the Declaration of Independence and one thing or another. She showed me a picture, and then she'd talk about it for a while, and then she'd stop and look at me. And... Waiting for you to tell her about one of your ancestors, huh? Yeah. Them dead silences got to be awfully embarrassing for a while. Well, couldn't you think of none of your ancestors that signed some important papers, like a Declaration of Independence or something? Well, tell you the truth, Abner, I don't know for sure that any of them could even write. Oh. Uh... And I know one thing. If I want to get in good with Aunt Agatha, I've got to dig up some importance grandfathers and great-grandfathers. Dig them up? I mean, if none of my ancestors was important, then i got to make up some. Now, Lum, don't go making up a bunch of stuff to tell that poor old lady. It just gets you in trouble like it always does when you try to be something you ain't. Well, now, Abner, I've got to make an impression somehow. Right? Oh, well, here we go. Well, I can't do it with money. I sure ain't got none of that. What went with all your money? Well, tell you the truth, I did have some of it I was hiding back. Because when I made out my income tax, I never wanted to admit I'd sit your failure, so I added a lot of income there that I never even got, just so I could make a big payment. Put out money that you never had? I know it sounds silly to you, but I just never wanted them giver men people to think I wasn't a success. I know what you done. You taken that tax blank in there and showed it to Mr. Penelope just to impress her how much you made. That's what you done. Well, I had her sort of glance over just to check my figures. Good enough for you. I'm glad you had to pay on that. Well, I don't see what harm there is in just telling a little tiny white story once in a while. Well, them little tiny white stories can get awful black and dirty from getting kicked around so much, I'll tell you that. Yeah. Long, why don't you just try being yourself for a while? I just don't like me, I guess. Well, just try. You ain't never give yourself a chance to get acquainted with the real you, a plain, honest storekeeper that... Pays attention to business instead of sitting around watching a tea kettle boil and 
dreaming up some peccatitious relates like your make-believe brother, Lou Ellen. Well, now, wait a second, though. Lou Ellen come in awful handy for a while. Ah, fiddle-dee-dee. Well, if it hadn't have been for him, Penelope would have found out I had to work over at the barbershop as a shoeshine boy. I know it. Then when Lou Ellen wasn't no use to me no more, I just got shut of him. Sent him clean down to the South Pole. <laughs> Could at least send him to a better climate. For pity's sakes, Abner, Lou Ellen weren't no real live person. What's the matter with you anyway? Lou Ellen was a whole lot realer than you, Air Law Matters. Huh? Everything you didn't want to be, you made Lou Ellen be. You shoved every bit of your dirty work off onto him. What's more, he taken it like a gentleman, never argued. Now look he. here, Abner. And he weren't ashamed of being a shoeshine boy, neither. He never cared what folks thought. I bound you if you'd have let him stay here, he'd have beat you out of Penelope Prittle, too, if she's any count at all. You ought to went to the South Pole and let Lou Ellen stay here. My grannies, that does it. I see who's friends you are. If you like Lou Ellen so much better than me, we can just unsolve partnership. Oh, no, we ain't. If you want to get out of being partners with me, buy me out. And the price, buddy, is $2,000. Oh, so that's it. That's you know it. I ain't got a dime, so you're just trying to humiliate me. Make me shame. Yeah, it's too bad Lou Ellen ain't here so you can shove the shame off on the ham. That's hey, what you special do. deliver letter for Lou Ellen. Come in, Grandpap. Special deliver letter. Big faker. For me? Here. Give it here, Grandpap. I wondered who could it be from. Huh. The letter felt kind of cold, like it might have come clean from the South Pole. Grandpap. Let's see here. Dear Brother Lum. Huh. Well, I'll be dead blamed. I just wanted you to know what a good time I had while I was in Pine Ridge. I had some money you never knowed about, but they ain't nothing to spend it on down here at the South Pole, so I want you to have it. So there's $2,000 in your name in the county seat bank. $2,000. Don't go spending it on some crazy invents. Ha, ha. And don't never try to make me take it back, because you ain't never going to see me no more. If you thought you really never had no twin brother, all I can say is a great big April fool. Signed, your brother, Lou Ellen. Abner Lou Ellen Peabody, you old son of a gun. <laughs> Lum and Abner would sign off the air for the final time on May 7th. However, the duo would star in one more film, Lum and Abner Abroad, in 1956. children of Israel that they bring unto thee pure oil, olive, beaten for the light, to cause the lamps to burn continually in the tabernacle of the congregation. And it shall be a statute forever in your generation. In October 1944, in conjunction with the Jewish Theological Seminary, NBC began one of the longest-running religious programs in radio history. It was called The Eternal Light. The Eternal Light. Then in its 10th year, the Eternal Light dramatized stories of ancient Judea, along with contemporary works like the Diary of Anne Frank. 
It was produced by Milton Krentz. Many top New York radio actors appeared. Make free time available NBC donated the airtime, and the seminary paid for the show's production. At 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time over NBC's WRCA in New York, the eternal light took to the air with a story entitled Children of Liberty. And the 20th anniversary of the founding of Youth Aliyah. By the waters of the Nile, a basket of bulrushes, coated with pitch and lined with clay, floated among the reeds, and a child, the child Moses, cried. And it is said that at that moment, the angels surrounded the throne of the divine justice and asked, Lord of the world, shall this wonderful child perish? And the Almighty answered, This child shall not perish. For he is destined at the head of my people to chant the great song of deliverance. The history of this child shall be a witness to my almighty power. This is the history not of one child, but of 64,000. And it is a witness to the power of the almighty. It is the story of 64,000 children who stand at the heart of their people, destined to chant the great song of deliverance. It is the history of a movement only 20 years old, yet within that movement are the seeds of 20 centuries of progress for all mankind. Youth Aliyah. Say the words again. Youth, we know, but uh, Aliyah. Can you spell it, little girl? Aliyah. A-L-I-Y-A-H. Aliyah. Good for you. An ancient Hebrew word meaning going upward. Today it means also immigration. Youth, Aliyah. The immigration of youth to Israel. A prosaic phrase suggesting passports and visas and the musty smell of law books. Yet behind the simple phrase is a modern miracle. I come from Yemen. I come from Poland. I from Iraq. I from France. From Morocco. From Hungary. Turkey. Latvia. Brazil. Bulgaria. Ecuador. Poland. Afghanistan. Yugoslavia. It has been no simple immigration. For these 64,000 children have been gathered up from every corner of the earth. They are brands plucked from the burning fire of war and persecution. They have wandered through the wilderness and been lifted up to a promised land. In the early months of 1932, a year of restless foreboding in Germany, a dozen young members of a Zionist youth group visited Frau Resha Freier, the wife of a Berlin rabbi. Frau Freier, can you help us find employment? We have lost our jobs. Resha Freier listened patiently. In the months that followed, she heard the same request in many forms. The problem turned over and over in her mind. They are all losing their jobs, all of them. She concerned herself with specifics. Can an unemployed Jewish youth in Berlin find work perhaps in Essen, in Düsseldorf? What is to become of them? Resha Freier slept less and worried more. 
And out of the tumble of concern, out of conflicting thoughts and impossible imaginings, by what divine process we do not know, a conviction came to Resha Fryer. So, gentlemen, we must send our youth to Palestine. Palestine? Now. But they are not prepared for that kind of life. Why must they be prepared here? Why can't they be trained in Eretz Israel itself? Oh, Fryer, let me make sure I understand you. You want to send boys of 15 or 16 away from their homes and train them for life on the land in Palestine? That's what I'm proposing. <laughs> Ridiculous, Frau Fryer. Impossible! It was an unheard-of suggestion. Everyone was against it. That is, almost everyone. The youth were for it. For more than a year, Resha Fryer sought support for her plan. And her most important conquest was another woman. A woman from Baltimore, then in her 73rd year, Henrietta Zold the acknowledged leader of social service work in Palestine. When Henrietta Zold undertook a task, there were few who could say no. No, Miss Zold. Finally, absolutely no. Herr Falkenberg, it is the only solution. Well, there's no reason for my son to leave. No reason with what's happening in Germany? Oh, it's not so serious as you think, Miss Zold. A few restrictions, some unpleasantness... Uh... It will pass. And these brown shirts, this Hitler? Unimportant lunatics. Man is playing politics. You're an American, Miss Old. You should understand that. I think I do. Uh, no one will listen. I think you are wrong. Even if you are right, and I hope you are right, I ask you to send your son to Palestine. Why? Why should I break up my family? Herr Parkenberg, what does a parent owe his child? Oh? Care, I suppose. Education? Love? More. Much more. A parent owes his child the chance to contribute to the world, to be a builder. Herr Falkenberg, send your son to Eretz Israel. Do not deny him his birthright. On the morning of February 19th, 1934, the SS Martha Washington steamed into Haifa Bay. Vanguard of Youth Aliyah, 43 German Jewish boys and girls between the ages of 15 and 17. In the following five months, 50 girls bound for a horticultural school at Talpiot near Jerusalem. 30 boys to be part of a workers' village in Haifa. 40 religious youth settling at Rodgers. Youth bound for a kibbutz in the Amek. Girls to attend the vocational high school in Jerusalem. Youth Aliyah, which had begun slowly, had taken on a certain tempo. There was just one little problem. I regret to inform you, Miss Earl, that you have exhausted the allocation of 350 certificates of entry granted by His Majesty's government. Nevertheless, between 1934 and 1938, some 3,000 German youths were brought to Palestine on the precious certificates of entry reluctantly doled out to Youth Aliyah. The German youth studied and worked, grew sun-tanned and fit, preparing in small groups for life on the land. In the hills of Galilee and on the plains of the Sharon, they rediscovered their ancient heritage. They found a new life. When their work in the fields was done, they danced the hora and sang an old new song. Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Ha-ha! <laughs> 
although many radio programs are being canceled. The Eternal Light would air on radio and then television until 1989. I think radio began its decline at the end of World War II with the development of television, probably late 40s, early 50s. Almost 1950 exactly when I would date it from. TV was taking over. What happened was just economics because the management of whom I was a part just said, your budget is cut, your budget is cut. Amos and Andy were brought back as disc jockeys. It was just economics and gradually shows were just left out of the schedule. I think the final thing I realized, I got an offer to go into television, and I didn't want to go into television, but I knew my job was vanishing. But I really knew it was vanishing. After I left and took a job at Screen Gems as a writer-producer, they never replaced me. I was the last vice president of CBS Radio. <laughs> Radio represented, in those days, to me at least, the freedom to fail, and we could try things, we could experiment. Sometimes we'd fall on our face, but every now and then we'd do something wonderful. And I think that's the essence of any creative process. One has to have the freedom to fail. In April 1954, the man you just heard, Bill Frug, was a supervisor for a new CBS series called Nightwatch. The show attempted to take Dragnet's realism to the next level. It placed reporter Don Reed in Culver City officer Ron Perkins' car. Reed rode the 6 p.m. to 2 a.m. shift, wearing a hidden wire to capture the high drama of the job. Before the premiere broadcast, Reed had accumulated over 100 reels of tape. It included criminals caught in the act, a homicide confession, and the statement of a drug addict. The show was produced by Sterling Tracy and announced by Dan Coverley. Vernon McKenney was the engineer and Ray Gethart the editor, removing all traces of real names and locales. Nightwatch premiered on Monday, April 5th at 10 p.m. with an episode called Nude Prowler. service, starting mileage 6428, 6428. Detectives Perkins and Walter, the police recorder Don Reed. Central District Patrol, turn of duty, 6 p.m. to 2 a.m. on the night watch. Check by board, mileage 6428, patrolling Central District, 604 p.m., starting night watch. This is Don Reed. I'm a police recorder. The sounds you're listening to are real. This is a police car reporting in service for night duty. You will actually ride with this detective unit and follow the activities of the police officers in this car. You will watch and listen with me as the cases unfold. And as you listen, remember the people you hear are not actors, and all the voices and sounds are authentic. 
for this is Night Watch. Night Watch. For the first time through the medium of network radio, the actual on-the-scene report of your police force in action. There are no actors. There is no script. The investigations are recorded as they actually occur. Night Watch, presented with the cooperation of the Police Department of Culver City, California, W.N. Hildebrand, Chief. We switch you to car 5-4, now on patrol, and to police recorder, Don Reed. Just uh, checking our log, at uh, 6.31 p.m. this date, we uh, took a stolen car report and arranged transportation home for the victim. 7.32 p.m. assisted West Los Angeles police at the scene of a traffic accident. Cleared, 8.22 p.m. It might be interesting to know... by some citizen or perhaps even the victim. We don't know. We have no further information on it. And we're taking off and moving as rapidly as conditions allow. Now, code two, is which we are running, is uh, means we just have our red light on. We're not using a siren for quite obvious reasons. We don't want to tip off our presence. Now, one thing in particular that I can feel as we're running in here on these last few seconds, I can feel the tension that has suddenly come over the car. I know I, I personally feel it. Uh, a moment ago, we were cruising along. The conversation was casual. And suddenly comes this call, a burglar, which uh, in the terminology of the police department, of course, is a 459. We're coming into the area now where uh, the burglar has been reported. We've traveled perhaps, uh, I'd say, two and a half to three miles since our call was originally received. Our car is now watching for the street. We'll turn off to the right when it happens. And as a matter of fact, this is it, I believe, up ahead. Our red light has been turned off now. We're in second gear, slowing down. No, apparently this is, yes, it is, too. This is the street. And uh, now our car lights have gone off. We're driving completely in the dark. The officers are watching both sides of the sidewalk to see if we can see any person at all of suspicious nature. And this apparently is the house right off to the right. I notice the officers observing. And we're coming in now, moving out as quietly as possible. The officers are getting out of the car, and we'll be right along behind them. Going up the walk as I'm talking. Up on the front porch, there's a, a gentleman who is uh, motioning the officers uh, into the house. Let's move right on in. Across from me in the bedroom door is a middle-aged woman uh, clutching a bathrobe to her throat and appears to be in a very highly nervous condition. The um, officers are questioning her about uh, the prowler. Let's uh, move right on over. Uh, whoever he was, he came in and I went into the bathroom and he was in this room and I thought it was my daughter. And then I was in the bathroom and he walked right in the bathroom and I went to go out and he gave me a shove. And I started screaming naturally then. My husband ran out of here and my daughter just came in. See? And he was gone by the time she came back in. Could you tell me, what did you look like, ma'am? He was taller than you was because he pushed me and he had a white shirt on and a tie. Was he a young man? Old yes, man? he was a younger man. And when he went to shove me, I screamed. And he wasn't going to let me out of the bathroom, you know. And whenever, as soon as he pushed me, then I, I noticed he had gray trousers and a white shirt and a tie. And he was, he was taller than you are. He must have come in this room first and dropped his coat. I don't know whether he knew, the, knew, knew these houses or whether he mixed them up. They don't get them to like. 
Oh, we found a, uh, a coat. The officers discovered a coat with a name in it, unquestionably. I'm moving out of the house now as I'm speaking, and uh, that was uh, the mother of you heard the description of it. I'm moving away now, and unquestionably we will go on an investigation and determine uh, just who and what this uh, man is. The officers now are checking to see if he is still in the neighborhood. Well, right now, we'll move back to our car. Traveling in an unmarked car, Reed used a reel-to-reel tape recorder with a microphone hidden in a flashlight. These were authentic, unscripted, and unrehearsed. In one case, Reed was nearly shot. In another, he was stabbed, but saved by a leather jacket. At the end of each show, Police Chief W.N. Hildebrand gave listeners updates on what happened to the people in each incident. Here in our uh, police car again, and I've uh, just been informed by one of the officers that uh, while we were in the house on this investigation, Control 1 has received a second prowler call uh, just a couple of blocks from here, as a matter of fact. Another car has been dispatched to that location. Four four in all units in suspect that we're we're looking for. He is in the bedroom, or rather the bathroom, of a private home. The officers are in with him, and uh, he is standing in the nude at the present time. The officers have called for a blanket. He's putting uh, putting up quite a fight about this whole thing. And uh, I'll see if I can move in there. I can't quite get near enough to him now to pick up his voice, because as I said, this, the uh, man in this case, the suspect, is completely nude, and they are throwing a uh, blanket around him. All right, fellow, you've been placed under arrest. Let's go. Well, the prisoner is being escorted out of the house, and I'm uh, tagging along behind now as, as I'm speaking. He is uh, handcuffed with uh, just a blanket pulled up around him. Outside of the door now. The prisoner is being placed in the backseat of uh, Unit 5-0 with an officer guarding him. Well, that means uh, for us, next stop, uh, police headquarters. It's uh, 10.05 p.m., and uh, I'm standing here at the booking desk in the Culver City Police Station. The suspect was positively identified by two of the victims a few moments ago. The uh, suspect is being brought out of the detention room now. You probably can hear the cell door open, and two of the officers are directing the prisoner toward the booking desk. And incidentally, he is uh, still handcuffed, and his only clothing is that blanket pulled around him. Uh, Sergeant Perkins is about to book the prisoner. What happened tonight? What happened tonight? Yeah. How'd you get involved? Jeff Ferris, name is Murphy. Your sergeant's name is I don't know what. Add the two together and you have how I got involved. How'd you get in that house down there? The house belonged to me, sergeant. How about the other two houses? They too belong to me, sergeant. Do you own the property, do you? Indeed I do. Where are your clothes? 
Officer, may I ask you a question? Have you ever, in your house, this is your own individual house, ever gone to the bathroom without your trousers on? Sure, in my own house. Right. That house in which this particular officer and officer, is it a, a sergeant? There are about five or six properties in the city of Santa Monica that I own. Uh, this is the city of Culver City, not the city of Santa Monica, and these people are signing complaints against you. Is that correct? Right. Okay, and I suggest that you check with the people themselves. Well, here is your property, Smith. Okay. What property you don't have, and you're being booked on suspicion of 459, which is burglary and attempt assault. Right. What? I say I am fully aware of that. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm take his hand, cut off, and put him on the back of the I, uh, Would I be going too far to ask for very trousers? We don't have any. We're buddies are going to try to get some for you. Just a second, please. May I finish talking about this? Okay. Would you do me one favor? What's that? Call the district attorney. You know the district attorney? No, not directly. Well, I'm sure that you'd wait till Monday morning then. No, I, no, I don't think so either. I think perhaps you better call now. Take his handcuffs off and put them back May I say one thing? I asked you. I made a request. We're calling Monday morning. I have, wait a minute. Before you go any further, I have committed no crimes. Remember this. I have asked for a request to call the district attorney, and you have said no, right? Take him back. That's all. Thank you. When you're demoted Monday morning, come see me. We have uh, moved over here to the uh, Night Watch Commander's office where he and uh, Sergeant Perkins have been conferring on the many reports necessary in this case. I, uh, I think we're about ready to clear, uh, right, Sergeant? In just a minute, Don. Uh, by the way, you might be interested in one or two other developments that have occurred. Really? Uh, a friend of the suspect came to the station a short while ago and brought some clothes for the prisoner. Mm -hmm. And incidentally, volunteered the information that the suspect did not, to his knowledge, own any of the property he claimed he did during our interrogation. I see. And by the way, he also stated the prisoner had been a guest of honor at a stag party given earlier this evening. Really? Yeah, he was scheduled to be married tomorrow. You are listening to Night Watch. For the first time, through the medium of network radio, the on-the-scene activities of a detective unit on their tour of duty. The people are not actors. Nightwatch aired until April 21, 1955. Don Reed went on to be one of the first traffic helicopter reporters. And Ron Perkins eventually was elected mayor of Culver City. to police recorder Don Reed on patrol in police car 5-4. Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not-so-classic story from the old-time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcast from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls.
Manhattan, the Bronx and Staten Island too. I think there is something so special between the listener and the other side of the microphone in the studio. Very special. I don't feel I'm talking to two men now. I feel I'm talking to a whole world. All of the people that you have created for me because of what you're doing. How many shows were you doing a week? I did as many as four and five shows a day. I did Terry and the Pirates and Dick Tracy back to back. And early in the day, I would do David Harum. And then I would do a half hour of Grand Central Station and so on. I would say that somewhere between 35 and 40,000 broadcasts passed through my hands. By April 1954, Hyman Brown had been involved in radio for more than two decades. He directed, produced, or created shows like Inner Sanctum Mysteries, The Adventures of the Thin Man, Grand Central Station, Bulldog Drummond, Dick Tracy, Flash Gordon, and Barry Craig, Confidential Investigator. William Gargan stars as Barry Craig, Confidential Investigator. The best time to die, folks, is in your own good time. But uh, try arguing with a bullet. The National Broadcasting Company presents William Gargan in another transcribed drama of mystery and adventure with America's number one detective, Barry Craig, confidential investigator. Barry Craig speaking. Not every client you get is a socially upright citizen, but then the only society of angels is up in heaven. Mere mortals are honorable only to a degree, the almighty dollar being what it is. The gent who plopped beside me on the Fifth Avenue bus didn't look too kosher to me, and it wasn't only because of the scar on his cheek. I know Scarface judges. Just uh, call it my hunch. I transferred my wallet to the side pocket furthest from him. I'm not a dip friend. Second story? Wrong again. A carnival show with arson as a sideline? Now, don't tell me you're in some honest trade. I am. Now, this is. You better yourself every day, friend. Begin bad and good. That's life, no? No comment. So, tell me. You think I sat next to you on purpose? I can tell when a guy does. You got me sized up by now? Not quite. Well, am I hired or no? First consider what I say. I murdered a man an hour ago. Oh, it's a fine day for it. I shot him. Now I've got him in a sack. Busy, little bee. I had the best of motives. That ought to reassure the corpse. You're a confidential investigator. Guilty. Your license makes you a technical arm of the law, sworn to uphold it. You've been reading my wall literature. It's your duty to detain and arrest me. I'm not the obliging type. Sorry. I'm getting off the bus. Getting off. Adios, amigo. William Gargan was born in Brooklyn, New York on July 17, 1905. His father was a detective and his mother a teacher. 
Gargan became a bootleg whiskey salesman and later a private eye. His brother Edward was an actor. One day while visiting him at rehearsal, Gargan was offered a stage job. He began his career in a loma of the South Seas. Gargan's first film was Rain. Later he played in Misleading Lady and starred in Three Ellery Queens. In 1940, he was nominated for a Best Supporting Actor Oscar for his role as Joe and They Knew What They Wanted. And in 1945, he starred along with Bing Crosby and Ingrid Bergman in The Bells of St. Mary's. Gargan was perhaps most famous for his role as Martin Kane, Private Eye. It was conceived as one of TV's earliest detective shows and ran concurrently on radio. Gargan played the lead on both mediums until the TV show became, as he alleged in his autobiography, a vehicle for the flesh parade. He balked when actresses were hired more for their cleavage than ability. Gargan's last performance as Kane occurred in June of 1951. That October 30 began playing Barry Craig in a similar sounding series. Craig worked alone from a Madison Avenue office and had good relationships with the cops. NBC produced the show in New York until the summer of 1954. Hyman Brown directed. What would you consider yourself, Hi, what was your label in radio? Because you directed, you also created. What do you, and what level do you think of yourself? I never had a label. It was a way of life. I created a show, I produced a show, I sold a show. I didn't put a label on myself, mm -hmm. but I belonged to the AFTRA, to the Guild, because occasionally I'd play a taxi cab driver. The big gag was Everett Sloan would go around and tell everybody that I would give him the wrong times for the repeats. We'd have to do a repeat for the West Coast. So I'd give him the wrong time. That would mean that they didn't show up so I could play the part. But believe me, I'll never forget Myra McCormick saying, hi, it's 10 minutes to 12 and Inner Sanctum has to go on. Do you know where I am? <laughs> I said, where are you? He said, Newark. Oh, oh no. Oh, no. Oh, I played his part uh, wonderfully. Don't. <laughs> they, all, they, all, they all used to rip me about that. But I'm a frustrated actor. I wouldn't put a label on myself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, it was... I don't know that we had labels. I got my anonymous friend's feeler right off. Was I really confidential, he wanted to find out. Find out before he dared to hire me. His story was a fake. Done to see if I'd grab him and yell police. I'd be seeing more of him. I got to see him again. In a health club and gymnasium while I was working out. Shredding stomach fat in a punch bag. My friend showed up to watch me. Save some of your punch for me, Craig. Well, back with me again, huh? Park on the bench here. We'll talk. Yeah. Well, I'm parked. So? I'm Moody. Jip Moody. 
Jip, huh? Jip means I've got gypsy blood. Oh. You, uh, get rid of that corpse, okay? <laughs> it's only kidding you. You think? You're for me. You don't run blabbing what you hear. So glad I passed your test. Now, what's my job? Two hundred grand stolen from me five years ago. I want to get it back. Explain. Johnny Phoenix stole it from me. Phoenix? Yeah, I... I dimly recall. A company treasurer or something. An ex-con I gave a chance to work. Uh, work at what? In my company, Export-Import. Phoenix robbed my safe and blew town. And got caught? He was grabbed in Canada, extradited. And convicted? Uh, I'm a little hazy. Convicted, yeah. But he didn't do time. He didn't? Not in jail, I mean. He acted crazy all through the trial, kept screaming about gophers and dragonflies and some dead ant. An act? I don't know. He did wear a silver plate in his skull. And a twitch to him that closed one eye every ten seconds. Anyhow, the judge took notice. Phoenix got a mental test, dementia, something or other, a doctor called it. A uh, split personality. Yeah, that. Phoenix was not responsible for his actions. He went to an asylum. Riverhead Asylum, upstate. Comes out tomorrow. Out? Free? Yeah, it's in the papers. Here. Johnny Phoenix to Judge Sane, freed on a show cause writ. Does he still stand trial for the original theft? No. He isn't the same guy who did the original robbery. So a doctor says. The DA agrees, so does the trial judge. Phoenix is a new man. Cured and rehabilitated. Beat that. The money was never recovered. Not a dime. I'm out all that. Big dough, 200 grand. No insurance? Um, I only had a fraction of it insured. Be there at Riverhead when Phoenix gets out. Stay with him. He's got the dough solid away. When he goes for it, you go for him. I'll give you 5%. Well, that's 10 grand. If money. If you get my 200 back. I was in the Riverhead Railroad Station upstate right with Johnny Phoenix. He'd been freed about an hour earlier. I kept out of sight while we waited for the train. A good-looking guy, Phoenix. Bushy hair with nature's own Marcella. Spare, broad-shouldered, a good clothes horse when he could get properly togged out. No pallor to his skin, you'd never know he'd been confined. Well, the train rolled in and I watched Phoenix climb aboard. When I tried to do likewise, I found opposition. One moment, sir. Hey, let go of my arm. My authority. A bag. I'm Sims of the state police. In civvies? Yeah, I'm off duty. However, you're under arrest. For what? Molestation. A woman complained. Molestation meaning mashing? That's right. Her description of the man fits you. Well, I'd laugh, but right now I haven't got a sense of humor. Getting tough won't help. I'm a policeman myself. I'll show you credentials. Yeah, you do all that at the station house. Are we going through with this, boss? I have authority to shoot a resistor. Uh, put your gun away. I've missed my train anyhow. Well, there's a train every two hours. This train was special. Let's go see your complainant. The complainant looked like she'd had trouble with mashers since pigtail days. Blonde, cream cheek, born to wear silk. Ma'am, is this the man who annoyed you? Uh... No, they have a superficial likeness, but my annoyer was oilier, grosser, and uh, on his chin here, a cleft. Thanks for the exoneration, doll. Followed me around the station, talking at me in some strange tongue. Esperanto. Can I go now? 
sorry if I caused you any inconvenience. Oh, it was nothing at all. I'm only out of probably lousy ten grand. Back at the Riverhead Station, again waiting for a train out. I tumbled to a masher mistaken identity routine I'd been caught up in. I watched for Golden Girl to come back to the station. When she did, I really molested her. Hello, doll. Doll, are you out of your mind? I'm mad over you. Mad? Oh, you really mean mad. I'd like to apologize Don't for... bother, just explain it. My arm, please, you're bruising it. All right, talk. Well, the circumstances are plain. Here in the station before, a man... An oily fellow, my size, shape, wearing my clothes, as you told State Trooper Sims. Only oily, your guy. Therefore, not me. An honest mistake. Dishonest, baby. Well, what do you mean? The only person molested in this depot today was me. And you engineered it deliberately. Deliberately? Why, that's absurd. To keep me off the train, Johnny Phoenix left Riverhead on. I can't understand a word you're saying. You've got me grabbing oh. your arm again, baby. Who are you? I can be gentlemanly, I can be very rough. Well, do we wrestle? All right. I'm Rita Phoenix. Sister or wife? Wife. Our train. We'll travel together, baby. Closer than Siamese twins. You made me lose Phoenix, but you're going to help me find him again. You're going to lead me back to him. Come on. Trains don't wait. On the train, we sat as close as the law allowed. I took the precaution of searching Rita's handbag. The ivory-handled gun surprised me just a little bit. I won it in a raffle. Does that explain it? Okay if I borrow it, baby. Can I stop you? I want a drink. Ah, so do I. Can't I even go to the club car without you? We're inseparable, remember? Boy, can I get a hate on you. Inseparable. Only thing I was wishing aloud. We were going to be separated. By no choice of mine. It happened in the club car while Golden Girl was watering her tonsils with Smirnoff vodka. The fellow flopped on the lounge beside her. With a beauty like Rita available, the dope chose to sit on my side. I knew why in less than a minute. I knew by the gun in my ribs. Do I have to spell it out, Craig? G-U-N. Gun. I'm glad you're quick on the think. The feel. Now, this is where you leave, Rita Phoenix. You've been hogging her company a long while now. You really expect me to obey? I know what you're thinking. The crowded club car, people all around us, conductors and stewards, but it won't help you, Craig. You'd have to be pretty desperate to shoot. You'd be crazy to tempt me. Dough, Craig. I drool when I think of the amount of dough at stake. All right. What's your play? That's better. The station up ahead, Sooner Falls. We roll into it exactly 3.47. That's in four minutes. You're getting off the train. Alone? Yeah. At the station, someone's waiting for you. A friend of mine. You plan far ahead, huh? I've got a knack for detail. Uh, how do I come out in all this? You just lose a client and an opportunity. No other harm done. I lose Rita. Yeah. I lose her, and she's your pigeon. Look, let's not stretch this conversation. Three minutes now, and we stop. Let's start moving to where you can get off.
In Suna Falls, I watched the train continue on to New York. The someone waiting to greet me was right on hand as promised. Hiya, pal. Put his face between two loaves of bread and you could call it a giant meat burger. Hey, what are you staring at my kisser for? It's ugly. Now, is that nice? My car's there. Is this ride necessary? Yeah, can be. Set it up. Can be, huh? Oh, did I just leak his name to you? No, 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 no. Canby's an old acquaintance. Oh. Uh, what makes this station so lonesome? No people. Sooner Falls is a hick town. Nobody in it. Well, why are you in it? For my asthma. I got asthma bad. This bug is pollen-free. So let's ride now, huh? Uh, where will we ride to? Around. Just around? Yeah. You're worrying. Don't. This rot on you don't mean nothing. <laughs> no holes in you, so don't worry, huh? My orders is just to stall around with you, see the sights, run you into six o'clock, and then give you the heave. Run me into six o'clock. Until Rita and Canby land in New York, get off that train, and get lost together. Canby doesn't want me phoning ahead. Hop in, pal. Delighted to. I'd love to tour sooner for him. Hey! Look off, I broke. When your lovely face turns from beet red to purple. Let, let go. It took a long time throttling. And when he finally dropped, I fell on his gun. Fell on his gun and just lay there. Production of Barry Craig moved to Hollywood in the summer. It ran until June 30, 1955. Gargan's acting career came to an end in 1958 when he developed throat cancer. Doctors were forced to remove his larynx. Speaking through an artificial voice box, he became an activist and spokesman for the American Cancer Society. No longer able to act, he formed William Gargan Productions, making film and TV shows in Hollywood. I left my meat-faced friend in a semi-conscious stupor and hurried into a pay station telephone. Operator, get me long distance. New York City. Police headquarters. Person to person, reverse charges. I want to talk to Lieutenant Trav Rogers. Finally, at long last, I arrived in New York. I'd sure missed a lot of trains. Trav Rogers had come through for me at his end. The man and woman you described on the telephone got off the train here in New York. They went off in separate directions. You had them shadowed? I did. Uh, where'd they go to? The ladies registered at the Parkfront Hotel as Rita Manning. A phony name. She's Rita Phoenix. How about Candy? He checked in at the Kilgore Hotel. Kilgore? New name to me. Over in Brooklyn Heights. Oh. Rita, the Parkfront Hotel. Canby, the Kilgore. Anything else you can enlighten me on? I think so. That story of Johnny Phoenix you told me over the long-distance phone. The original theft from your client, uh... Jip Moody. The, uh, subsequent trial of Phoenix, his insane behavior in court, and the resultant confinement in an asylum... Et cetera, and so forth. What can you add to it? I found a discrepancy in your tale. What? The alleged $200,000 Phoenix stole. Alleged? In my review of the record of the case... No such sum. 
Phoenix was booked and tried for the theft of exactly $50,000. For a fact. I have a duplicate of the district attorney's file, if you'd uh, care to see it. I'll take your word. Quite a gap between 200000 and 50000 A gap that can buy Boku cherries for the wine. Uh, your client magnified the figure to fire your uh, zeal as a retriever? No, Moody's queer, but not like that. His 200000 figure has some other significance. What? I can't know until I put the question to Moody. Uh, Phoenix never disgorged any of the loot? Not a copic. What did the police do about it? About trying to recover the money from Phoenix, I mean. Oh, the usual devices and pressures. All we accomplished was a show put on by Phoenix. He acted nuts. Climbed the walls, screaming he was a chimpanzee in a jungle. After Phoenix's asylum confinement, what police activity about the money was there? The obvious. A police plant right on the asylum... Hoping to catch Phoenix in a rational moment, win Phoenix's confidence. Yeah, quite an assignment for a cop, feigning insanity. We had to change our plants every ten days, the sheer wear and tear. <laughs> the plant began to wonder about himself, huh? Was he or wasn't he Napoleon Bonaparte? Environment, they say, molds the personality. <laughs> Trav, as usual, you've been a big help. Mm -hmm. Write a letter of commendation to my superiors. But it's a very, very important part of theater. If I can leave nothing else with the people who have been listening. Theater is wonderful. You've got a curtain, you've got a stage, you come there, you sit there with 800 more people, and you see what you see and you relate to your neighbor, perhaps. Even now, they've done away with curtains. You walk into a theater today, and the set is part of your audience because they want to engage you as far as they can. Films, forget it. You're not going to go see Schwarzenegger and identify with the nonsense he's through or follow that car or the explosions mm -hmm. and whatnot. You'll identify with Driving Miss Daisy, but I'll make you identify with Driving Miss Daisy tenfold by giving you those people in your imagination. You'll see not Jessica Tandy or the actresses that have played in this on Broadway, mm -hmm. you'll see your own Jessica Tandy, your own mm -hmm. Daisy, who might be your neighbor or your grandmother or your great aunt. Or How much more exciting it is. Because of the special broadcast which follows, Stage Struck will not be heard tonight. Instead, we invite you to listen to CBS Radio's 11th feature project production, The Wetbacks, which follows immediately. This is the sound of water. This is the Rio Nueva, the new river. It's about 10 feet wide and about 18 inches deep. It's part of the international boundary between the United States and Mexico. On the evening of March 20th at 7 o'clock, a man crossed that stream of water. He made his way through a hole in the wire fence that separates the United States from Mexico. He entered the United States illegally in an attempt to get into the interior of this country. The man carried a small battered suitcase. It could have been the suitcase of a spy or a smuggler or a saboteur or an enemy agent. According to the authorized official description of atomic devices that could be used for sabotage, 
a description just released by J. Edgar Hoover of the FBI, that suitcase could have contained such a device. During the next hour, we'll follow that man and his suitcase to find out if he could penetrate the United States illegally, but more important, to understand the conditions that made it possible for him to join the two million more illegal aliens who enter the United States each year as the wetbacks. <laughs> In 1954, CBS Radio's Documentary Unit presented a special feature on a variety of hot-button topics. On April 11th, illegal immigration from Mexico was their focus. Today, the term wetback is one of derision and insult. It might have privately been considered the same in 1954, but in the mainstream, it was used to describe anyone who swam into the U.S. from across the Rio Grande River. At the height of Red Scare mania, the fear was a communist spy could pose as a Mexican migrant. America's leading law enforcement problems. Now, here is your narrator, CBS Radio Washington correspondent, Ron Cochran. The man with the small, battered suitcase stands on the Mexican side of the border. He waits for darkness to cover the open fields on both sides of the international boundary line. His name is Carlos Moreno. He stands separated from the 30 or more Mexican wetbacks who are also waiting for dark. Carlos Moreno has a job to do. I'm standing amongst a group of wetbacks on the Mexican side overlooking the American border. I intend to go down at 7 o'clock and cross the border through a hole in the fence to the American side. The moon is covered with clouds and it's fairly dark. I should be able to cross without any trouble. Carlos Moreno's job is to get across the border illegally. He is to try to make his way into the interior of California by using taxi cabs to take him from one town to another. He is to try to avoid being picked up by enforcement officers. He is to carry his suitcase the whole way to Los Angeles, and he is to speak only in Spanish. Carlos Moreno is of unmistakably Mexican descent. He is not an enemy agent, but a reporter. The suitcase he carries, the suitcase which could carry enemy devices, actually contains a tape recorder, and he will report to us at each leg of the trip, as he does now. I've come to the abutment that holds up this fence on the international borderline. It is solid concrete, and it is firm enough so that I can walk on it. I cling to the fence and almost get a toehold on the line, crossing a span of about 10 feet. At the end of that span is a hole that has been cut into the line, about four by three. I'm now getting ready to go through that hole, and as I step out, I'm on the American side. About two feet below me is New River, which separates the United States and Mexico. I'm now moving across the flat terrain. To my left, I see a group of wetbacks, which is heading over toward the left. I think my chances are better if I take the right and go off by myself. On the outskirts of the California town of Calexico, Carlos Moreno waves at a passing cab. It stops. He walks to it, opens the door, makes his deal with the driver. Carlos Moreno, illegal entrant, is on his way. 
and the two million other illegal entrants who come through the fences or around them, who are they? Why do they come? How do they get here? What is the effect of this influx? Why do we have a wide-open back door for anyone who chooses to come in? And what is being done about it? The answers to these questions are found along the whole length of the Mexican-United States border and spread over more than two-thirds of the 48 states. But in the Imperial Valley of California may be found a cross-section of the whole problem. And in Imperial County, California, the chief of the local office of the Border Patrol, Ed Parker, starts the answer. The term wetback, as you know, developed as a result of the fact that on the Texas border some years back, the Mexicans who entered illegally usually swam across the Rio Grande and when found a few moments later would be wet. And how do the wetbacks get in? How do they get in? Well, 24 hours a day, opposite the cities, through the farms, in the mountains, in the desert, they come across. There are barriers to their crossing, sure. Opposite the towns, we have uh, chain-link fences often, but they can be cut or they can be passed over or dug under. In the farming areas, there are usually cattle fences or drift fences. And out in the desert or along the rivers, there may be nothing at all. And on this single sector of the border, in this one area protected by the Border Patrol group of which Ed Parker is chief, how many illegal aliens actually do come across? This sector borders on just about 10% of the total United States-Mexico boundary. And in this 10% of the border area and the land lying north of it, during the first seven months of the present fiscal year, our officers apprehended over one quarter of a million illegally entered aliens. They processed them, returned them to Mexico. And how many who got through were not apprehended? I would hate to make an estimate of how many we didn't get, and our, those, of course, are now probably, for the most part, in the interior of the United States, where they'll be costly indeed to locate and remove. Well, how does a border patrol work to apprehend illegal aliens? One way is to send up small aircraft that can spot wetbacks in the fields or along the railroad beds. With two-way radio communication, the plane directs other border patrolmen in trucks on the ground, like this. And with the plane airborne, it takes only a few minutes before the first message comes through. Plane 168 calling car 210. Plane 168 calling car 210. Uh, 168, this is unit 210. Go ahead. Car 210, what is your present location? Uh, we are now on the Dogwood Canal Road and approaching the intersection of the Dogwood Road and Highway 80. Over. Roger, when you get to the Dogwood Road, would you turn south to your right? Uh, we have uh, spotted a group of three aliens where the uh, Dogwood Road crosses the Southern uh, Pacific Railroad tracks. Uh, let me know when you get uh, in that vicinity. Uh, Roger, 168. We are now turning on the Dogwood Road. Over. Roger. We will proceed to about 200 yards farther and then stop the car. Uh, I'll give you further direction back to your wall at that point. That is received, 168210. The next day in New York City, Bill Haley and the Comets recorded the groundbreaking single, Rock Around the Clock. You get out of the car and walk directly 
actually, that was the time that CBS was rating all of the NBC talent. Hal Perry, Hal's agent, signed him to CBS. Kraft decided they did not want to change networks, and so they had to recast Gilly. Hal and I had a voice similarity. It finally came down to the fact that I felt, and Frank Pittman, who was the producer, felt that I could do it without having to do an imitation. It worked out very nicely. It would have been dangerous for someone to imitate Hal Perry. I think you yeah. couldn't you really couldn't well, carry that off. It was a difficult decision because the producers weren't quite sure whether they wanted to try to keep the voice somewhat the same or whether they wanted a completely、mm -hmm. different voice.、Mm -hmm. And I wasn't sure whether I wanted to do it because if I had failed with it, I'd have been out of my ear. So we finally did a reading with the writers. The character was so well written. I found that I could play it. As I say our voice similarity. My voice is a little bit deeper than Hal's, but the quality was there. Voice quality was there. I didn't have to make any conscious effort to do any imitation or anything like that. One rather strange thing that a lot of people don't understand: the Gillespie laugh. Hee <laughs> was really Hal's. He used it as Gildersleeve. When I came into the picture, I decided I didn't want to use it because he used to use that, do a character on, called Professor Rollo on a show we did in Chicago called Thank You Stuja with Bernadine <laughs> Flynn,、mm -hmm. and I never did the laugh. I mean, I laughed, but not that laugh. And I used to do what they called the Gildersleeve social chuckle. <laughs> but I didn't do the laugh,、uh -huh. and still to this day. If I'm introduced to somebody and they say, "Oh, you were Gildersleeve," let me hear you laugh because、mm -hmm. it was so well ingrained in the character. Did you、um, find it difficult to follow Hal Perry? No, I didn't because, as I say, the writing was so beautifully done. John Elliott and Andy White and Paul West, who were writing the show, wrote it so wonderfully that I just played the character. Hal. And I had been friends, and still continue to be friends. I've seen him through the years a lot, and we get along very well.、Uh, I think Hal may have been a little resentful at the time, but I, I don't think he, for the on the long range, he was. Willard Waterman had been portraying Throckmorton P. Gildersleeve since the fall of 1950, when Harold Perry left the program. In the spring of 1954, the Great Gildersleeve was airing Wednesdays at 8:30 p.m. Eastern Time over NBC. Kraft had sponsored the program since the debut in 1941. The show's 5.8 rating was good enough for 14th overall, and NBC's fourth highest program. It easily beat out CBS's 21st Precinct, airing opposite at the same time. Did the general public realize that there was a change of lead actors in the Great Gildersleeve back then? I in think. That time. I think many of them did not know. The billing was different, but in those days, people didn't pay all that much attention to billing.、Mm -hmm. The voice had enough similarity that a lot of people, for a long time anyway, didn't know there was a change. I guess some people still don't know. The name、uh, Gildersleeve is bigger than the name Perry or Waterman. Neither one of us have that personal identification.、Mm -hmm. 
Oh, you I have the personal identification with the role of the great Gildersleeve. Well, a lot of people do. Yes. A lot of people still say, "Oh, that was Hal Perry." Yeah. And as I say, we both did it for nine years. So yeah. it's amazing that that show ran that long. I can't imagine that Hal Perry would have thought in uh, you know 1949, 1950 when he you took it over in 50, didn't 50, you? At the yeah. beginning of that, did you think that it was going to last for you know I, that many more years? I had no idea at the time how long it would last. Hal maybe got a little short shrift from his agent because they thought. They could deliver the show to CBS,、mm-hmm. and they signed him to the contract. So now he was under contract to CBS. They had to produce a show for him. So they started a show called Honest Harold,、mm-hmm. and I think it was unfortunate. What they tried to do was pattern the show after the Gildersleeve show, and of course Gildersleeve was still on, on、mm-hmm. NBC, so it didn't work. And it was too bad because Hal was a very versatile actor. He could do many, many, many voices, many, many things, and it would have been far better for him, I believe, had he developed another character,、mm-hmm. a new show around it, and then that would have been, as the pattern was, gone on to television. It would have been another new good show,、mm-hmm. radio,、mm-hmm. television show. But with the sort of a copy of Gildersleeve, it just didn't work. On April 14th, Gildersleeve hosted a dinner party for Bronco's boss. The Kraft Foods Company presents Willard Waterman as the Great Gildersleeve. The Great Gildersleeve is brought to you, transcribed by the Kraft Foods Company, and Kraft, you know, makes the famous pasteurized processed cheese food Velveeta. Velveeta has a wonderful cheddar cheese flavor that's rich yet delightfully mild. It's delicious, and it's the finest quality cheese food you can buy because it's made by Kraft, the name that for years has meant only the finest in cheese and cheese food. Get a package or loaf of Velveeta tomorrow and enjoy the cheese food of top quality. Velveeta, made only by Kraft. Well, let's see what's doing in the great Gildersleeve city of Summerfield. Along about this time every morning, the bulky figure of the water commissioner emerges from city hall. And ambles along the tree-lined walk that takes him to Peavy's pharmacy. Right, George. Peavy has a lot of rabbits in his window. Well, Easter's next Sunday. Rabbits look better in the winter than hot water bottles. <laughs> hello, Peavy. Well, hello, Mister Gildersleeve. <laughs> What can I do for you this morning? Uh, Peavy, that's quite a display of chocolate rabbits you have in the window.、Mm, I think so. Why don't you get live ones? Well, if I had live ones, I'd have to feed them. These feed me. Have a bite. What's that? They're pretty good chocolate. Go ahead, bite off his other ear. Well, I love chocolate. I think I will break off a chunk. Sorry, rabbit. Mmm, almonds. Mmm, right. Yeah, it's the best part of the rabbit. 
Say, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I'll take home a bag of these. Well, uh, I've sold a lot of candy this way. Oh? But I'm getting pretty sick of eating rabbits. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, just charge it, Peavy. Well, well. Uh, how about some candy for your girlfriend? Well, I have been seeing a lot of Miss Olsen recently, but uh, I thought I'd send her an Easter lily. Well, she can't eat that. Oh. <laughs> oh. I strongly recommend the king-size chocolate rabbit. You might say, take a bunny to your honey. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take candy. I'll take something elegant like chocolate-covered cherries. Very well. Say, isn't that your niece's husband out front? Yeah, that's Bronco looking over your rabbit display. <laughs> I'm not going to need another one if he comes in here. Hello, Mr. Peavy. Well, hello, Bronco. Bronco, how are you, my boy? Hello, Mr. Gildersleeve. Yeah, I'll take a package of gum here, Mr. Peavy. Very well. How are things going at the plant? Oh, just great. Uh, Peavy, I guess you heard Bronco's boss is sending him to Paris as branch manager. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, my boss is a great guy. Yeah, I'd like to do something real nice for him. Care to take him a chocolate rabbit? <laughs> oh, Mr. Peavy, you're kidding. <laughs> uh, Bronco, have you ever entertained your boss? Oh, I couldn't entertain Mr. Hammond. He's a big shot. He lives out at the country club. What could I do to entertain him? Well, you might invite him out to the house to meet the little family. Those fellows enjoy a little home cooking, don't they, Peavy? Mm, I do. I'd put Mrs. Peavy up against the country club any time. Well, I don't know. I don't think I should invite him over. He might think it's a little dull. No, Bronco, you are making a mistake. You could have an interesting little dinner party. You can invite me. Well, it... and I can invite Miss Olson. Her accent would give the party kind of a classy flavor. And I could bring Mrs. Peavy. What's that? She used to play the musical song. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Peavy, I'm serious. Well, Mrs. Peavy used to be serious about the musical song. She nearly got a tryout with Major Bowles. <laughs> yes, yes. Now, I don't think Marge could handle such a big dinner party. <laughs> I was only judging, Bronco. Mrs. Peavy's out of town anyway. Well, Marge could get Bertie to help her. Yeah, I'd be glad to come. Yeah, I've entertained the mayor. Well, I would like to know the boss socially. You just invite him and leave everything to me. Well, this is very nice of you, Mr. Gildersleeve. Oh, should Marjorie call Miss Olson? No, I'll take care of that. Yes, sir, Mr. Hammond will enjoy an evening like that, won't he, Peavy? If Miss Olson's there, he'll enjoy the evening all right. Well, that's why I'm inviting her. I'm doing a favor for Bronco. And it might turn out to be a favor to Mr. Hammond. Peavy. Yes, Bertie, I'm home. How about that, was you? Bertie, can you leave the kitchen a minute? Yes, sir. I don't think that Stu's going to miss me. Stu? Hey, Bertie, how'd you like to cook for Mr. Dudley Hammond? Uh-oh, you mean I'm fired? We don't have to have Stu tonight. <laughs> no, you're not fired. We can never get along without you. <laughs> I know that, but somebody might think they can. <laughs> no, indeed. What I have in mind is... You might like to help Marjorie with her dinner party. Oh, I'd like that. But Miss Marjorie was over here and she didn't say anything about a dinner party. Well, it was my idea. Oh, yes, sir. Yeah, I suggested it to Bronco. Sort of promote him with his boss. Yes, sir. 
With Bertie in the kitchen, Mr. Bronco's practically promoted. <laughs> that's the spirit. Bertie's modest. That's one thing I can say for me. I'm modest. Yeah. But when Mr. Dudley Hammond tastes Bertie's cooking, his eyes is going to light up like a pinball machine. Well, I know we can count on you. Unky? Oh, hello, Marjorie. Unky, Bronco just phoned, and he has the most marvelous idea. We're having a dinner party for Mr. Hammond. Oh, wait a minute. That's my idea. Oh? Well, anyway, it's a wonderful idea. Hi, everybody. Hello, Leroy. What's a wonderful idea? Oh, one of mine. Miss Gilsey wants me to do the cooking. Oh, would you, Bertie? What's cooking? Just imagine, Unky. He accepted our invitation. You bet. Who accepted what invitation? Uh, Leroy, this doesn't concern you. If it has anything to do with eating, it concerns me. Oh. <laughs> you can go to a movie and have dinner at Mr. Peavy's drugstore. Well, I'll go to a movie, but I won't have dinner at Mr. Peavy's. I'm so full of chocolate rabbits now, I could hop. Well, I'll treat you to dinner out someplace. Well, why are you paying to get rid of me? I'm giving a dinner party for Bronco's boss at Marjorie's house, and Bertie's going to cook it. Get him. He says he's giving it. <laughs> well, Unky did give us the idea, and it's a very good one. Yeah, thank you, my dear. Well, I have to run home. I want to get the house ready for tomorrow night. I'll be over to help you, Miss Marjorie. Uh, thank you, Bertie. Goodbye, Unky Leroy. Goodbye, my dear. So long. How many's going to be at the party, Miss Gilsey? You're just Bronco's boss, and I've invited Miss Olson. For him? For me, young man. And just to liven up the evening. Oh, brother, you live dangerously. He sure does. What do you mean? Mr. Hammond's a handsome bachelor. I'll say I've seen him. Oh? I went out to the plant with Bronco. Mr. Hammond was dictating to three secretaries. Three secretaries? And none of them knew what he was saying. <laughs> they just sat looking at him. He was so handsome, he had him practically swooning. <laughs> Leroy, you're exaggerating. Every time he'd say, dear sir, they'd go, ah. <laughs> Bronco tells me when women come around, Mr. Hammond, he runs. Which way? <laughs> Away from them. That's why he's still a successful bachelor. Oh, Mr. Gilsley, don't have much to worry about. Yeah, of course not. I could see that when Miss Olson was over here last week. Miss Gilsley had a mumbling to herself. <laughs> she wasn't mumbling to herself. She was speaking French. Now, Leroy. Uh, one of those other languages. That's it. Mr. Gilsey's got her talking to herself in five different languages. Now, Bertie. Yes, sir. He's got her talking to herself in French, Swedish, Italian, Spanish, and turtle dove English. You mean pigeon English? No. When she talks to Mr. Gilsey, she talks in turtle dove English. Now, Bertie. Mr. Gilsey, do you know how she talks to you? Yes, Bertie. That's right. She talks to you in turtle dove English. <laughs> Marjorie, your table looks very pretty, doesn't it, Marie? Lovely. You're a very charming hostess, Marjorie. Well, thank you. Oh, you folks don't have to say those nice things. Marge is going to feed you anyway. <laughs> Gee, I wonder what's keeping Mr. Hammond. He'll be along. When I left the plant, he was talking to Washington on the phone. Oh, it would still be a nice party if he didn't come at all. Oh, Marie, you just want to be with Mr. Gildersleeve. <laughs> <laughs> Now, oh, Marie, we mustn't make Mr. Hammond feel like a fifth wheel. I'm so glad Unky and Marie are here. We, we wouldn't know how to entertain him, would we, Bronco? No, it's not easy to do. 
Mr. Hammond's strictly business. Well, there he is, Kitty. Oh, yes, Bronco, you go to the door. Well, why don't we both go to the door? Well, I think you should go. We could all go. Stop, Bronco, get the door! Bertie, please. I'll go. Does the house look all right, Unky? Hey, Marjorie, relax. Well, Mr. Hammond. Hello, Bronco. Oh, welcome to our little home. Here, let me take your hat and coat. And your gloves. Thank you. I hope I'm not late. Oh, no, no. The others are just early. <laughs> Say, he's not as old as I thought he'd be. You mean a man that young owns a big plant? Well, I looked younger than that when I started running the water department. Yeah, right in here, Mr. Hammond. Well, I want you to meet my wife, Marjorie. Uh, I've heard a lot about you, Marjorie. I've been looking forward to meeting you, Mr. Hammond. And this is Miss Marie Olson. How do you do, Mr. Hammond? How do you do? What a charming accent. Thank you. Yes, and this is Marjorie's uncle, Mr. Gildersleeve. Mr. Gildersleeve? It's a pleasure, Mr. Hammond. You've no doubt heard of me. I'm city water commissioner. <laughs> oh, uh, yes, I've heard of you, Silversleeve. Uh, <laughs> Gildersleeve. Throckmorton P. Oh, isn't that what I said? <laughs> well, I've been working too hard, Bronco. You'll have to assume more of my duties. Oh, anything you say, Mr. Hammond. Is that a promotion, Bronco? Shh, shh, shh. Well, uh, let's everybody sit down and visit before dinner, huh? Good idea. Uh, Marjorie, I imagine you kids hate to give up this cozy little place for Paris. Oh, no. We're so indebted to you for the opportunity to go, Mr. Hammond. Yeah, Marjorie's so right. <laughs> well, Bronco's earned it. The trip to Paris is all Marjorie has been able to talk about. Miss Olson, I, I can't quite place that delightful accent of yours. May I sit here by you? If you wish. I was going to sit there. <laughs> Obviously, you've spent quite a lot of time abroad. Oh, yes, she speaks five languages. Marie's a very interesting conversationalist. Mm -hmm. Do you two converse in foreign languages? Well, I only speak English. But I used to speak a little Latin when I was in high school. You know, I guess all of us had to take a little Latin, eh, Mr. Hammond? It certainly helped me when I was setting up my branch offices in Europe, especially in Paris. Do you speak French, Mr. Hammond? Oh, a little. Je suis sûr que mon français n'est pas aussi bon que le vôtre. Oh, au contraire. Vous parlez très bien. Well, merci, mademoiselle. Show off. <laughs> Say, that's... That's very good, Mr. Hammond. Hey, Marjorie, I hope you'll forgive me for brushing up a little. Well, I thought it was charming. Well, that's only because Miss Olsen is so charming. Oh, thank you, Mr. Hammond. I thought he ran from women. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I'm indebted to you for having Miss Olsen here tonight, but of course, that's the thoughtful hostess. Oh, Mr. Hammond. Yeah, we're glad you're having a good time. Isn't this working out wonderfully, Anki? Oh, yes. Uh, dinner, sir. Oh, thank you, Bertie. Uh, shall we go into the dining room? I'm sure everybody's starved. Oh, uh, Mr. Hammond, I think Marge is seating you, our guest of honor, next to Miss Olson. Zeke. Wonderful. My arm, Miss Olson. This is like having dessert before I get to the table. <laughs> How very corny. May I escort you to the table, Marge, honey? Uh-huh. Come along. I'll take your arm, too, Anki. No, no. Go ahead. I'll ring up the rear. I'm not only a fifth wheel, I'm a flat tire.
Gildersleeve will be back in just a minute. Parley Bayer played Mr. Hammond. In the old days of radio, I could almost tell the kind of part it was going to be by the director who hired me. Some saw me as a rural hayraker, and somebody else saw me as a booming second-rate politician. It's good that people don't all think alike. Are you playing the, like the Indian said, everybody would want his squaw. <laughs> In the fall, Gildersleeve shifted formats, becoming a weeknight 15-minute serial before returning to a half hour in the fall of 1955. The last great Gildersleeve radio episode would air on March 21, 1957. You did the radio Gildersleeve right to the very end of radio, near the end, I think. I think we were the last... 15-minute shows then, weren't you? For two years before the end of Arrow, we did it as a five-week, 15-minute show, mm -hmm. and it was very, very popular at that time. And then we went back after Crash dropped it to a half-hour format. We were the last audience mm. show in Hollywood. By that time, you were only doing one show then? Yes. You weren't doing two shows, one for the East Coast and one for the West Coast, were you? No, we, by that time, it was on tape. But that took a long time to happen because Kraft had a very adverse feeling about tape. They didn't like tape. <laughs> the way we got to taping, under Kraft's supervision anyway, I had to have an appendectomy. So I recorded the first scene and the last scene for what was to be the next show. And I did the show one Wednesday, went in Thursday morning to the hospital and had my operation. And in actuality, I could have done the show the next week, but they uh, did this to protect themselves. And then later when they found out that it didn't change the show any, why we were able to go to tape. So the other actors did the show live, but they, they inserted, the your, inserted your record. Your, yeah, the record's uh, opening and the record uh, closed. So you were kind of written out of the I body home, of the I show. I stayed home and listened to the show. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed it. Didn't you think he was obnoxious? No, sir, to tell the truth, I can't rightly say he was. What? Mr. Hammond told me my cooking was a gastronomic delight, and that's not obnoxious. <laughs> <laughs> well. Yes, sir. So you know what I think? Mr. Hammond's a fine man. For more info on the show's transition from Perry to Waterman, tune into Breaking Walls, episode 120. Too late, Unky. Beat you to the punch again. Mr. Hammond's one fine man. He's a show-off, a flatterer, and an all-round sneaky-type character. Terror on the Air is an auditory escape into a different world. It's a podcast frozen in time and space where anything can happen. Be intrigued. I'm ready to confess to the crime of murder. Be in suspense. What is that sound? Be entertained. Go ahead, suck on that straw, you. Be moved to tears. No! Be transported back in time. Terror on the Air. Tune in on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, keep your volume turned up for terror.
I have uh, what you call a theatrical trained voice, which sounds a little English, a little Southern, and Tallulah Bankhead came from Jasper, Alabama, and so she had Southern with a little of this. Anyway, I had a cold once on Lux, a very, very bad cold, and when I get a cold, my voice goes deeper and deeper and deeper, and this was the one that was starring Tallulah, and I had the first line, and she looked up at the director, Fred Mackay, and she said, darling, you have got to be kidding. (laughs) (laughs) At that point, I said, oh, this is the easiest money I ever had, and I left and was paid, you know. (laughs) I thought it was very amusing. I've been mistaken for her and Catherine Hepburn and everybody. April 18, 1954, was both the first day of Passover and Easter Sunday. In Los Angeles, the weather was warm and foggy. The front page of the L.A. Times predicted record crowds at Easter services. The Major League Baseball season was underway. It would be three years before Los Angeles imported the Dodgers from Brooklyn. Two days prior, VP Richard Nixon told the press he feared the U.S. would be forced to send troops to Vietnam. That evening at 7.30 p.m. over CBS's KNX, The Whistler signed on the air, guest starring Betty Lou Gerson and John Stevenson. The Signal Oil Program, The Whistler. That whistle is your signal for the Signal Oil Program, The Whistler. I am the whistler, and I know many things, for I walk by night. I know many strange tales, hidden in the hearts of men and women who have stepped into the shadows. Yes, I know the nameless terrors of which they dare not speak. Yes, friends, it's time for the Signal Oil program, The Whistler. Rated by Independent Research, the most popular program on the West Coast. The Whistler had become one of West Coast Radio's most famous regional programs since its launch in 1942. Voiced by Bill Foreman, the Whistler's narration omnisciently taunted the characters. Stories were often told from the guilty party's perspective. Their guilt was known, but the outcome was in doubt. And now the Whistler's strange story, Traveling Companion. The Whistler character was so popular, Columbia Pictures made eight films between 1944 and 48. Dorothy Roberts whistled the notes. Standing in the lobby of the Hotel Continental in Pisa, Italy, with a group of some 20 other tourists, Clara Marshall, age 25, and attractive enough to draw attention anywhere, was smiling quietly to herself, and with good reason. Yes, Clara, for the past eight months you've handled things perfectly, haven't you? Wanted by the Chicago police for your part in a series of minor swindles, you slipped out of town and covered your tracks so successfully they lost all trace of you. Some weeks later, in a Los Angeles bookstore, you casually made the acquaintance of elderly, wealthy Harriet Wilson and took full advantage of this chance meeting, didn't you, Clara? Yes, 
Now you're not only her trusted employee, but her secretary and traveling companion on a tour of Europe and waiting on a foggy Italian morning to accompany her on a guided tour of Pisa. Ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please. Sorry, ladies and gentlemen, but I'm forced to cancel today's tour. Too foggy. Oh, but Clyde, the streetcars are running. You needn't drive the bus. Sorry, Miss Marshall. It would be impossible to take a group this size through the foggy city on streetcars. Too dangerous. But we don't plan to come through this city again. And Miss Wilson is so counted on seeing the Leaning Tower. Isn't that right, Harriet? Well, yes, I had looked forward to but it. You know we're leaving this afternoon. Please, Guide, won't you reconsider? Uh, Miss Marshall, in the interest of the group as a whole, I... Uh, I am sorry, really. Oh, really, I don't... Pardon me, miss. What? I couldn't help overhearing. It seems a shame that fellow American visitors who are so interested in seeing historical places should not see them. <laughs> it looks as if not much is going to be done about well, that. Well, I was just going to suggest... Oh? ...that I'd be glad to take you to the Leaning Tower. It really isn't far from here. Oh, would you? Well, that would be wonderful, wouldn't it, Harriet? Well, uh, why, yes, it would. Good. Let's lose no time, then. This way, ladies. <laughs> You smile, don't you, Clara? Leaving the hotel and boarding the crowded streetcar. As you steal a glance at the stranger, you notice that he's studying you, too, very closely, as if memorizing every detail of your appearance. And Harriet is quite excited about the whole adventure as the car rattles along the street. Clara, just think about going through the streets of Pisa in the fog and on a streetcar. <laughs> it's so thrilling. <laughs> it was nice of you to offer to escort us. It means a lot to see places we've seen in pictures so often. I want to go to the top of the tower and look down. Yes, they say that's where Galileo proved his theory about weights falling at the same rate of speed, you know. Oh, yes. <laughs> I just love to try dropping something. <laughs> uh, Ladies, I'm sorry, but I won't be able to take you to the tower today after all. What? Well, you said it wasn't far. I'm sorry, but it's unavoidable. Come, let's get off at the next stop. It seems we have no choice. And in this fog. You'll be all right. Get off at the third stop on the returning car, and you'll be right at your hotel. We'll remember. I'm sorry. It's just that I have a most important engagement, and it's later than I realized. It just isn't my day. Thanks anyway, Mr. Hungate. Raymond Hungate. I'll try and see you later. Goodbye for now. As the three of you step from the streetcar, Raymond slips something into your pocket and quickly puts his fingers to his lips to silence you, and suddenly he's gone into the fog. As you look around, you notice two men who left the streetcar just before it pulled away hurry off in the same direction Raymond took. You feel sure they're following him, don't you, Clara? Harriet seems concerned only with watching for a returning car and is relieved as it appears, and you're soon back at your hotel. Oh, at last. Oh, this hotel room looks good to me. My, now, why would he offer to take us to the Leaning Tower and then deliberately leave us stranded in the middle of this strange city in the fog? Well, I believe he meant to take us, but something he couldn't help caused him to leave. Mm, perhaps you're right. <laughs> now that we're back safe and sound, I'll admit it was a thrill. And he was nice looking, wasn't he? <laughs> yes. And it seemed he was going to be an interesting guide. Now, he was an American, 
but seem to know his way around here in this foreign land. I wonder Harriet, if... I believe it's best not to discuss this with the others on the tour. Oh? Uh, well, maybe you're right. Well, they'd have the laugh on us if they knew the details. Yes. Let's admit we didn't get to the tower, but forget the rest. Hmm? You're right, my dear. Hmm. Well... I wonder what the others are doing now. Oh, probably playing bridge. Why don't you go down and see if they have enough for full tables? I believe I will. Uh, won't you come along? Uh, not right now. But let's keep this our secret. Hmm? Uh -huh. Between you and me, I believe we'll see Mr. Raymond Hungate again. Oh, I do hope so. <laughs> My, isn't this romantic? Wouldn't it be something if you met your future husband here in Italy? On a foggy day. Oh, Harriet, <laughs> you're going overboard. It's time you joined your friends. All right, but I like the idea anyway. <laughs> You'll join us soon, dear. In a little while, Harriet, uh -huh. yes. You feel relieved when the door finally closes, don't you, Clara? And you cross the room quickly. Get Raymond's package from the pocket of your coat. You unwrap it, open the box carefully, and gasp as you view its contents. A necklace, a diamond necklace. You're startled, aren't you, Clara? And you wonder if the diamonds in the necklace are real. It seems unlikely that a perfect stranger would entrust you with something so valuable. But after the tour moves on to the city of Rome, you manage to leave Harriet for a short time and seek out a reliable-looking jewelry store. I want to see if the clasp on a necklace is all right. I'll be glad to help you, miss. Uh, here it is. Oh, my. How very beautiful. So well-designed. Worth many thousands of American dollars, eh? I suppose. <laughs> ah, but it is, miss. I know. A very valuable piece. Uh, the clasps seem all right? Mm, one moment. Uh, yes. Yes, it seems in perfect order. But it is well to be careful. Oh, thank you so much. You see, my, uh, my aunt wanted to wear it tomorrow evening, but wanted to be sure that it would be safe. I understand. Um, could I show you anything while you're here? <laughs> Not now, thank you. But what you tell me about the necklace is most reassuring. Clara, events have conspired to bring you luck, haven't they? Unexpectedly, a man named Raymond Hungate, escorting you to the Leaning Tower of Pisa, suddenly found a reason to leave you, but left a valuable diamond necklace in your coat pocket. Now in Rome, you find yourself thinking about the two determined-looking men who were following Mr. Hungate, and you realize that if by chance they caught up with him, the necklace will remain yours. But shortly after leaving the jewelry shop, you suddenly become aware of someone walking at your side. You look up quickly and recognize the man you met in Pisa, Raymond Hungate. He speaks low as you near a small basement restaurant. Would you like some refreshments, Miss Marshall? After all, we have something important to discuss. All right. I think this should prove an interesting place. Table for two, please. This way. Now, how about that one back in the corner? Very good, sir. Thank you. For now, we'd uh, just like some coffee. Perhaps something else later on. Very good, sir. 
been enjoying your trip since you were so rudely left in the fog in Pisa? Yes, but no thanks to you. I apologize. It was unforgivable to leave you stranded, but believe me, it was most necessary. So I gathered. Did your two friends that followed you off the streetcar catch up with you? No. No, thanks to the fog, they didn't. And I want to know, I, I appreciate your cooperation. Oh, think nothing of it. Uh, your coffee, sir. Thank you. Uh, were you satisfied that the diamonds were real? I noticed you were having the jeweler look the necklace over. Just making sure the clasp was in good condition. You would have felt rather foolish if the clerk had recognized that necklace as a stolen one. Is it? Could be. Or hadn't you guessed? But if you had known, you would, of course, have taken it to the authorities. No. No, I've thought about it, and then I thought about something else. Uh -huh. How would you like a partner? Did you say partner? Yes, don't be so overwhelmed. You already have one, you know. Otherwise, I'd have turned the necklace over to the police. You're right. You see, it could be uh, a convenient setup. If you're interested in stolen or black market jewelry, you'll sooner or later be suspected. Perhaps your room and luggage searched. Eventually, you'll be caught. Yes, that isn't a very pretty picture, is I'm it? I'm serious. If someone were to take the jewels and keep them for you, someone who wouldn't be suspected, someone, say, who's just uh, on a sightseeing tour, wouldn't your work be easier? I'm beginning to see your point. However, what about your traveling companion? She seems quite a, a chatterbox. Harriet? <laughs> She'd be an asset. She's already set up a storybook romance for us. I'm sure she'd keep quiet about our seeing one another from time to time. Perhaps, given the story that you're on some dangerous secret mission. Ah. Well, the plan might have some advantages. And how do I know I can trust two women? Haven't you already found out? For my part, I can use some extra income. I'm getting somewhat fed up playing nursemaid to Harriet Wilson. Well, I'll have to give it some thought. Meanwhile, do you want me to keep the necklace for you? Why, yes. You might as well, partner. <laughs> I thought so. And don't worry about Harriet. I'll keep her happy. The Whistler would finally go off the air after the September 8th, 1955 episode. We've taken our Those With A Day's microphone to Van Nuys, California, where we are visiting with George Balzer, who wrote for Jack Benny for 25 years. What was it like to write for Jack Benny for 25 years, George? I've always regarded it as a privilege for having experienced the opportunity of writing for a man like Jack Benny. When did you start with Jack? 1943. You were one of four writers who came on board at that time, wasn't it? That is correct. At that time, there was myself and my partner, Sam Perrin, Milt Josephsberg, and John Tackaberry. We followed a team of uh, Bill Morrow and Ed Boulogne, who had been with Jack for five, six, seven years previous to that. And then they uh, went their own direction, other directions, and we moved in as Jack's writers. 
Was there a head writer in the group of many writers? Yes and no. And the reason I say yes and no is because the head writer, the really the head writer was Jack himself. Even though he didn't actually do much writing, he was the one who really controlled what he wanted to do. As the Jack Benny program moved into spring, the comedian was still seen as a ratings powerhouse. Through the years, Benny made little tweaks to his team without losing his audience. Bob Crosby replaced Phil Harris as band leader in the fall of 1952. In 1954, Mary Livingston, always a victim of stage fright, began to record her lines at home. Joan Benny or Jeanette Iman played the Mary role for the audience, and the real Mary was dubbed in for the broadcast tape. If a household had both a radio and TV, they could tune into Benny's CBS radio show at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Sundays, and then switch over to his TV show, which aired at 7.30. Don, that was swell. Gee, I had a lot to do. Yeah. You know, I like to do that kind of a number where I have a chance to play my violin, and I, I'll bet it sells Lucky Strikes, too. Oh, it does, Jack. It does. You know something, Don? A lot of people think I can't play the violin because I kid a lot. But I have good technique, nice tone, and as a matter of fact, I consider myself quite an accomplished musician. I'd like to go on Edward R. Murrow's program and answer that. Well, Jack, the sportsman and I have to run along. I'll see you at 8 o'clock. Oh, yeah, 8 o'clock. Don't forget to bring the medium. We're going to have our seance. I won't. So long. So long, Don. Well, Don, we're all here, and the medium hasn't arrived yet. Don't worry. She'll be here soon, Jack. Hey, by the way, what's her name, Don? Madam Zimba. Gee, that's a silly name. What's silly about it? And listen, Dennis, a seance is a very serious thing, so I don't want you doing anything stupid. Oh, I won't, and I'm very glad to be here, and I hope Madam Zimba can contact Sherlock Holmes. Why? I want to find out who stole the ding-dong. <laughs> Dennis, young in head. <laughs> Listen to me, I don't want you... Well, that must be Madame Zimba now. I'll get it. Good evening. Good evening. I am Madame Zimba. Come in. Madam Zimba, we're expecting you. Madam Zimba, my name is Jack Benny. Oh, gentlemen, gentlemen, this is Madam Zimba. How do you do, Hello. Well, shall we go on with the seance? Yes. And let me say that the signs all go well for this evening. Tonight, a small comet will cross the Earth's orbit. This is fortunate. Well, are comets good for seances? Yes. In fact, when the tremendous Halley's Comet passes close to the Earth, Seances are at their best. But that only happens about once a century. That's right. You know, the last time it was visible from the Earth was in 1910. Oh, did you see Halley's Comet, Mr. Benny? Twice. <laughs> Dennis, keep quiet. 
What's that? I am ready. It's time to start. Now everybody sit down. Form a circle and hold hands. Come on, fellas. Come on, let's, let's do it. And now I repeat the mystic incantation. And then we... Wait a minute. What's wrong? There are only five of us here. To contact the spirits of the dead, I need a secret circle of six. Gee, what are we going to do? Oh, oh, I know who to get. Oh, Rochester! <laughs> Rochester! Yes, Mr. Benning? Rochester, we're holding a seance, but we need six people before we can contact the spirits. So you're going to join us. Who, me? <laughs> Yes, you. Look, Rochester, if you're afraid, you don't have to be. A seance is a perfectly normal experience. Uh -huh. People have seances every night when they contact the dead. Uh-huh. Now sit down and join us. Wouldn't you like to talk to the spirits? Not until I'm one of them. <laughs> Madam Zimba, maybe you can convince them. I'll try. Look, there's nothing to be afraid of. <laughs> and it will be an interesting experience. You'll meet the spirits of so many famous people who have passed on. Lady, I don't want to meet nobody I can't shake hands with. <laughs> Rochester, stop worrying and sit down. Now, let's start. I'll, I'll put out the lights. There. There we are. Proceed, Madam Simba. Oh, spirits, we are ready. Oh, spirits of the netherworld, wherever you are, whatever you are doing, I, Madam Zimba, command your presence. Now we mortals will sit in complete silence and wait. Look! Look, I think we've contacted the spirit world. There's something white coming in through the window. I'll go fix you a sandwich, boss. <laughs> Sit down. <laughs> yes, you're breaking the mood. Spirits come in, come through the great cosmos, through the unknown, and visit with us. Quiet, everybody. I've made a contact. Come in. I am here with a message. Who is it? Who is it? It's not for you. If it's for me, tell him to slip it under the door. <laughs> Sit down. It's not for you either. I have contacted the spirit of Dennis Day's great grandfather. Gee, Dennis, me boy, I've been watching you all your life, and I've waited all these years to contact you. Come closer to me, me boy. Okay. A little closer. Yes, sir. 
a little closer. Here I am. a ghost do that? There's no explanation to the mysteries of the outer world. Wait a minute. I've made another contact. It's a famous spirit. One who's been trying to speak to you, Mr. Benny. Me? Yes. It's the spirit of Diamond Jim Brady. Gosh. Diamond Jim Brady. Jack Benny. I want to talk to you, Jack Benny. I'm here, Jim. <laughs> Jack, I've been watching over you for many years, and you've been a big disappointment to me. You've gone against all the things I've stood for. Slap him. <laughs> Dennis, be quiet. What? What were you saying, Jim? You've amassed a great share of worldly goods, and yet you persist with your penny-pinching ways. But... No buts. Why don't you live a little? Spend, spend, spend. Be like I was. I spent my money lavishly. Whenever I walked into a nightclub or restaurant, I'd pick up every check in the place. I had fun. That's fun? <laughs> I never... I never thought of it that way. Well, think, man, think. And believe me when I tell you, Jack Benny, you should spend because you can't take it with you. Are you sure? <laughs> None of us were able to, but the odds up here are ten to one you'll find a way. <laughs> Look, look, Mr. Brady. I must leave now, but remember my advice. Spend, 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 spend. Oh, the seance is over. Well, what do you think of it, Jack? It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And you want to know something, fellas? It made me see the light. I'm going to change my ways. Starting immediately, everybody on my show will get a raise. And Rochester, you're getting one too. Gee, thanks, boss. In fact, I'm going to the next room and phone my business manager and tell him all about your raises right now. Excuse me. Well, how did it go, Mr. Wilson? Fine, fine. You were perfect. You did a great job of acting. Well, I thought we all played our parts great. Who was the smart aleck that slapped me? <laughs> make any difference. Everyone acted great. Especially you, Rochester, the way you pretended to be scared. Wasn't that good? <laughs> you certainly were. That was a wonderful idea. We finally got Jack to loosen up. Well, fellas, it's all fixed. Did you talk to your business manager? I sure did. He also manages the man who played the ghost, so none of you are getting razor. <laughs> Better luck next time, fellas.
Jack will be back in just a minute. But first, a word to cigarette smokers. Lucky's taste better. Cleaner, fresher, smoother. Lucky's taste better. Benny's 1949 deal with CBS helped make the network the 1950s powerhouse. For more info on Benny's landmark deal and the CBS talent raids which followed, tune into Breaking Walls episode 108, 109, and 110. You know, Rochester, even though you fellas all framed this seance, it was kind of interesting at that. Well, boss, you're not mad that we tricked you, are you? No, no, not at all. You mean it, boss? Rochester, I rather enjoyed it. Why? I was the one that slapped Dennis. (laughs) Good night, folks. The Jack Benny program is written by Sam Perrin, Milt Josephsburg, George Balzer, John Tackerberry, Al Gordon, Al Goldman, and produced and transcribed by Hilliard Marks. The Jack Benny program is brought to you by Lucky Strike, product of the American Tobacco Company, America's leading manufacturer of cigarettes. This is the CBS Radio Network. KNX Radio, Los Angeles. In January 1953, Joseph McCarthy began his second term as U.S. Senator from Wisconsin as the Republican Party regained control of the Senate. McCarthy was made chairman of the Committee on Government Operations. This included a permanent subcommittee that allowed McCarthy to continue communist investigations within the government. He appointed Roy Cohn as chief counsel and Bobby Kennedy as assistant. McCarthy's committee investigated the U.S. Army They believed the Army Signal Corps at Fort Monmouth had been infiltrated. The investigation was largely fruitless. Then, the Army accused McCarthy of seeking special treatment for Private G. David Shine, a chief consultant and close friend of Cohn's. Shine had been drafted the previous year. The Senate decided that these conflicting charges should be investigated. South Dakota Republican Senator Carl Munt chaired the subcommittee. John G. Adams was the Army's counsel. Joseph Welch, special counsel. The hearings were telecast nationally on both ABC and the Dumont Network. 80 million people saw these hearings that lasted 36 days. They began on April 22nd. CBS Radio was there. The Luella Parsons program, sponsored by the makers of Luster Cream Shampoo, will not be heard tonight, so that CBS Radio can bring you the special broadcast which follows immediately. Good evening. This is Griffin Bancroft of CBS Radio News, recording in Washington. The fourth day of hearings in the McCarthy Army dispute opened this morning with the Army springing a surprise, which seemed to catch almost all concerned unawares. In this case, the Army's secret weapon was a photograph. Yesterday, committee counsel Jenkins had introduced a photograph obtained from the McCarthy committee staff showing just Army Secretary Stevens and Private David Shine, the private for whom Army spokesman claimed McCarthy and his aides sought special favors, and the private McCarthy claims the Army people used as a hostage to get his investigations called off. 
Well, the first picture showed just Stevens and Shine, but at the start today, the Army produced a photograph from which this segment had been cut, and it showed that originally it was a group picture, not one of just Stevens and Shine alone. So, in the still-crowded, high-ceiling caucus room in the Senate office building, the fourth day got underway with charges of doctored evidence. And here to tell you about today's hearings with recorded excerpts is my colleague, Bill Costello. In the slang of the vaudeville theater, today's hearing opened with a socko act. The calm of the hearing room was shattered when Attorney Welch, acting on behalf of Army Secretary Stevens, entered his objection to the photographic evidence produced yesterday. His plea was that it was offered after Stevens had said he had no recollection of having had his picture taken alone with Shine, and therefore had put the secretary in a bad light. At the time of its original introduction, the picture was a minor point designed to attack the credibility of Secretary Stevens' testimony. But before the morning was out, it became a major source of controversy. Here, Mr. Welch raised the subject. point of order is that Mr. Jenkins yesterday was imposed upon, and so was the Secretary of the Army, by having a doctored or altered photograph produced in this courtroom as if it were honest. This is a committee room, Mr. Welch. A committee room and produced as if it were honest. I have the photograph that was offered yesterday in evidence, and in respect to which Mr. Stevens was not only examined, but cross-examined. Early in the hearings, a photo of Private Shine was produced, with Joseph Welch accusing Roy Cohn of doctoring the image, supposedly to show Shine alone with Army Secretary Robert T. Stevens. Cohn and Shine both insisted the picture was unedited. Welch then produced a wider shot of Stevens and Shine with Colonel Jack Bradley and McCarthy aide Frank Carr. So that somebody could say to Stevens, were you not photographed alone with David Shine? This lie hurt McCarthy's side. He was photographed in a group. Mr. Jenkins, I would like to say with all my power, sir, I know you would never participate in a trick like this, but I suggest to you, sir, that you were imposed upon. I would like now to offer the picture that I have in my right hand as the original, undoctored, unaltered piece of evidence. Committee counsel Jenkins, who had every appearance of being taken aback by the Army's new photographic exhibit, lost no time in making his position clear, saying he had acted in complete good faith. On the heels of a demand from Senator McClellan that the second enlargement be properly introduced as evidence, Senator McCarthy reacted with an angry objection, and for a few minutes there was an uproar as Chairman Munt pounded vainly for order. Mr. Chairman, the point of order is this, that Mr. Welch, under the guise of making a point of order, has testified that a picture is doctored. I now have before me, and I may say this is the, yesterday was the first time I saw either of these pictures, the picture that was introduced yesterday, the one Mr. Welch puts in today, he makes a completely false statement, so this is a group picture, it is not. McCarthy was quickly losing steam and allies. His policies were turning up little evidence. His list of 200 known communists never materialized. And this turn of attention to the army was a political gamble. It wouldn't work, and later would cost McCarthy 
his position in the Senate. Now, Mr. Chairman, do I have the floor or do I not? Mr. Chairman, it's not a board of order. It's the Mary, no! God, let what? go! I simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, get away. no! Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast 12 Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. I remember talking to Jack Benny one day because we would also double over and do the Benny show. I would be playing the other character on the Benny show and Phil and I would ride back and forth. I remember once going from CBS to NBC, we cut across the parking lot because the shows backed into each other. Jack was on out here. Show originated 4 to 4.30 and Phil's show originated when we were both on Sundays, 4.30 to 5. They were on later out here, but that fed New York at 7 o'clock, I guess. And they got a two-passenger bicycle for Phil and I to ride so they get publicity shots of us, right? <laughs> we almost blew both shows because neither of us can handle a bike. RCA Victor, world leader in radio, first in recorded music, and first in television presents the Phil Harris Alice Faye Show. Here is the Phil Harris Alice Faye Show, transcribed, written by Jack Douglas and Marvin Fisher, with Elliot Lewis, Walter Tetley, Janine Roos, Anne Whitfield, the orchestra under the direction of Skip Martin, and yours truly, Bill Foreman. Some time ago, Elmo Roper, the famous research organization, conducted a nationwide survey. Its purpose was this, to find what television set people want the most. From start to finish, it was a completely independent survey to get the facts. In April 1954, Phil Harris and Alice Faye were in the midst of their last season on the air. The husband-wife duo had been starring together on radio since 1946. You started your own show on the Fitch Bandwagon. I played the Fitch Bandwagon, and then from there, that's when I went. I took Cass Daly's place. Were you playing the bandwagon strictly as the orchestra? They put bands on, that's all. You played tunes. And how did that come about? How did, did they come to you just as the band leader and say, hey, we want you on the... They were putting on all kind of bands. Oh, yeah, Every sure. week, they, they had so, band, well, yeah. what the hell? I could, they ran out of people, so they called on me, you know. And Alice Faye had been around a little bit, you know. She'd been a star for a hundred years at uh, 
20th century. In the Master 21, Harris spent the better part of the last decade working with Elliot Lewis. They both worked under Jack Benny for years. Elliot's a good writer, a good producer, and you know Leonard did all right. He later went with Lucy or somebody, he did very Danny well. Danny Thomas, he did a lot of stuff with. That's right. Sheldon That's right. Leonard, yeah. Well, those guys all came up through the ranks, you know. I mean, they knew what they were doing. Because when you're around Benny, you were around a guy that he and Fred Allen and guys like that, they're timing, you know, they're um, like Benny used to have office hours in Beverly Hills. Those writers had to be there, didn't they? They were there at a certain time. He sat at the table. Nobody took bits home like they do now. You do this and you two writers do. No way. You sat right at the table and started this thing. And I've been in there sometime. Jack and I, we really got along. And I've been in there sometime when they had a line for me to break the building down. Mm -hmm. And Benny would say, no, does not fit his character. I've been too long building it up. In other words, he protected, protected. Mm -hmm. You hear a lot of other shows, they had a guy in the air one time, they had him doing this, doing that. First thing you know, they burn him out. Then he came to me one time, he said, there's no way to kill you. I found you four stories down in the basement. I brought you out, I had you married, I had you drinking, I had two kids, I had you back on the booze again. He said, there's no way to kill you. <laughs> on April 30th, they presented a special Red Cross blood drive program. Let me see if I can get them in back of there. There. Now we got the back on. There you are, Elliot. You see, when you've got a mechanical genius like me around, it saves you money. You'd have been crazy to give a jeweler three dollars to fix your watch. <laughs> yeah. See, thanks, Curly. It's almost as good as new. Now all I have to do is go through life pretending that it's always a quarter to six. <laughs> That's right, and having a watch that's always at a quarter to six has its advantages. Can you think of a better way to miss Lawrence Welk? <laughs> I never thought of it that way. Well, think. Think of those things, Clyde. Think. It's little things like that that make living in California worthwhile. Well, I've done my good deed for today, so I'll just... Oh, hi, Alice. Hello, Alice. Hello, fellas. Hey, where have you been, Alice? Over at the bank. How much do you let them have, honey? <laughs> hey, Alice, why don't you take Curly into the vault sometime? He'd just love to run through that stuff at his bare feet. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be a kick, huh? Gentlemen, at some other time, these remarks might be very amusing. But it so happens that I've just come from the Encino Blood Bank and like almost all other nonprofit community blood banks in the country, have only about 15% of the blood donations they should have. No kidding. That's right. And we're at our wit's end. We, we don't know what to do about it. Hey, wait a minute. Hey, Alice. Yeah? Forget it. I've got an idea. Listen, why don't I put a show on right here in Encino? You know, a, a, a show especially for the blood bank. I don't think I quite understand, Phil. How will that help? Well, don't you see, honey, we'll charge admission and raise a lot of money, and then... Money? Oh, Phil, listen, you've got it all mixed up like thousands of other people in the country. Don't you see? You can't buy blood. It has to be donated. Well, it has to be donated. Well, wait a minute. 
Now I got a better idea. We'll put on a show here in Encino, and instead of charging money for admission, we'll charge a pint of blood. That's it. Now, like if the man or the big brother or the head of the family gives a pint, then we'll let the whole family in to see the show. Huh? Look, Alice, you go tell your committee not to worry. We'll give them the greatest show they ever saw. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you for this wonderful turnout for the Encino Blood Bank Show. We're going to have a lot of swell entertainment here tonight, and then some of you lucky people are going to win some of the new RCA Victor Master 21-inch television sets. And we also have a lot of RCA Victor personal portable radios as our door prizes. But let's get on with the show. We're going to start with a magic name in American music. This man's records have sold up in the millions. I give you Mr. Dixieland, one of the jazz greats of all times, Red Nichols and his five pennies. Opposite on NBC TV, the big story pulled a rating of 29.5, while the season rating for Harris Fay was under 3.3. With radio on its way out, NBC canceled the show at the end of the season. The last episode aired on June 18th. By then, Elliot Lewis was getting sick of dealing with agency and network red tape. There was an anecdote on Gunsmoke where uh, the agency band was sitting up in the booth or something and there was a line in the script that said uh, where Matt Dillon was supposed to have said, well, we're lucky that didn't happen. And he, and he just went through the roof. He said, well, you can't have the word lucky on a show that's sponsored by Chesterfield. Right. That's the kind of thing we're talking about where agencies and sponsors and, and so forth just really should butt out and not be involved in We that. had one like that when I was producing the Lucy show at a Christmas show. Agency man is sitting there at the dress rehearsal. End of the Christmas show group of child singers arrive at the door to sing a carol. And Lucy opens the door and says, Oh, come in. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Lovely closing. And they go, Joy to the world. And the agency man went right through the roof because that was a competing product. Mm. Joy. Incredible. You know. So you're dealing with what we used to call the League of Frightened Men. All the people that are afraid to have opinions or, or have judgments or allow anybody else to have them for fear of rocking the boat. Well, that's a devastating uh, series of words. The League of Frightened. <laughs> yeah, well, we always used to call them. You know. I used to have a, a cup on my desk that, that I kept pencils in, and I had painted on it a famous Fred Allen line, which is, where were you when the page was blank? The National Broadcasting Company presents Youth Wants to Know, a program dedicated to the principle that the future of America rests with the young people of our nation. And to help receive some of the questions in their minds, here is Stephen McCormick speaking for Theodore Granick, founder and producer of Youth Wants to Know. Mr. McCormick. This week, the governors of many of our states are here in Washington for conferences with President Eisenhower and many other high officials of our government. 
At their conference, the governors have been discussing many problems, state and national, ranging from health to foreign policy. And today on Youth Wants to Know, it's our privilege to have as guest the governor of our largest state in the Union, Governor Alan Shivers of Texas. Governor Shivers, the young people who take part in our program here under the auspices of the National Public Relations Division of the American Legion, as you can well imagine, have a good many questions for you regarding Texas and other issues of our day. Shall we go ahead and find out what's on their minds? Yes, Mr. All right, fine. There's a question, young lady. Governor Shivers, my name is Sidney Sharkey. Can you tell me the difference between a Republican and an Eisenhower Democrat? Well, uh, we generally consider Republicans in the South as people who have been Republicans all their lives. An Eisenhower Democrat is one who, I suppose, supported General Eisenhower for President of the United States. Mm -hmm. Do we have another question? The young man has his hand raised. Governor Shivers, my name is Phil Anowitz. You supported President Eisenhower in 1952. Have you since changed your mind, or will you continue to support President Eisenhower's policies in this year's elections? Well, the conditions under which I supported General Eisenhower for President of the United States were those that I thought were best for the nation at that time, and I have not changed my views as they're being best at that time. As to what the conditions will be in 1956, I don't think you can tell or I can tell. I'll say this. Frankly, I hope that the Democratic Party can get a candidate that is strong enough and a platform that is strong enough uh, to carry not only my convictions, but those of the nation. Before 1956, Governor, what about this year? Do you feel that you wish to commit yourself as to how you feel on the uh, elections here in 54? Well, I'm going to be running myself in Texas in 54. <laughs> and you'd know how I'd feel about that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's find out what this young lady has for a question. Governor Shivers, President Eisenhower does seem to have made some progress uh, with the problem of segregation or integration. Uh, what do you think of the pending Supreme Court decision concerning an integrated school system in the District of Columbia and in several of the southern states? Well, I don't know too much about it in the District of Columbia. It will make a very great impact uh, in most of the states, of course. And we have committees in a good portion of our state, at least, studying a question now and trying to make preparations uh, for anything that might happen in view of the decision and, of course, not knowing what the decision is going to be. Mm -hmm. The young man has his hand raised. Uh, Governor Shivers, my name is Alan Shine. Next time on Breaking idea, Walls, uh, as the weather heats up in May of 1954, Brown versus the Board of Education delivers a landmark decision. We have in Texas and have had for a long time what has been called a separate but equal facilities. It decreed racial segregation within the U.S. school system to be unconstitutional. Dixiecrats opposed the ruling, while many others felt it was an injustice rectified 90 years too late. We'll cover this and every other radio and national happening as we move towards Memorial Day 1954. Actually, uh, there isn't any harm and I think a lot of benefit in the way the present system is being operated, particularly in Texas. Go ahead with your question. Governor Shivers, do you think that Senator McCarthy's popularity has declined as a result of the present hearings? I've been so busy during the present hearings. As a matter of fact, I've only seen about uh, 10 minutes of it on uh, television. I saw that in San Antonio a few days ago. And I've been, uh, during the past uh, week, been in Washington most of the time, attending the governor's conference and doing some other matters there for the state. 
and really haven't based any opinion on it. I think, however, there has been a slight loss in popularity, if you want to put it on that basis. What do you think of the spectacle, a Republican secretary and a Republican senator brawling like this in public? Oh, I wouldn't... (laughs) I wouldn't call that brawling. Uh, I don't know of a period in history when uh, men who hold public office public position haven't been arguing about uh, different views. The reading material used in today's episode was On the Air by John Dunning, Network Radio Ratings by Jim Ramsberg, The Complete Escape Log by Keith Scott, as well as articles from Broadcasting Magazine and Life Magazine. On the interview front, Parley Bayer, George Balzer, Hyman Brown, Phil Harris, Elliot Lewis and Willard Waterman spoke to Chuck Shaden. Hear their full chats at speakingofradio.com. Hyman Brown also spoke to Dick Bertel and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. Hear these full interviews at goldenage-wtic.org. Hyman Brown, Bill Frug, and Betty Lou Gerson spoke to Spurvac. For more info, go to spurvac.com. Elliot Lewis also spoke with John Dunning, for his 71 KNUS program from Denver. I don't try to keep up with what's helpful or harmful to the Republican Party. Selected music featured in today's episode was Voodoo Dreams by Les Baxter, Manhattan by Blossom Deary, and Walking in the Air by George Winston. Go ahead, please. Governor Shivers, do you think that Senator McCarthy should be recalled? Special thank you to Ted Davenport, Jerry Hendigas, and Gordon Skeen. For Ted, go to radiomemories.com. For Jerry, visit otrsite.com. And for Gordon, please go to PassDaily.com. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA radio network. Governor Shivers, my name is Ronald Nuttall. I'd like to know, uh, in your home state of Texas, who is a greater power, McCarthy or President Eisenhower? Oh, Eisenhower, I think. Breaking Walls, episode 127, will pick up our miniseries in May of 1954 as the Army McCarthy hearings continue and Brown versus the Board of Education is decided. This episode will be available beginning May 1st, 2022, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. Any public issue that's been debated as much as that has will always be an issue in certain sections, some feeling strong one way. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. The young lady with the orange blouse. Governor Shivers, my name is Ann Lois. I wonder if uh, you think that Senator McCarthy has designs at all upon the presidency, and if so, do you think there's any chance of his being elected? (laughs) Well, that gets back to 1956 again, and uh, while I've known Senator McCarthy for several years, I don't believe we've ever discussed whether he has any designs on being president, and I I don't, uh, frankly, I don't know whether he has or not. And, uh, you can also join the Breaking Walls I, Facebook I, I group at facebook.com slash groups slash the wallbreakers and support this show for as little as a buck a month at patreon.com slash the wallbreakers. This controversy is certainly before the public. That's right. Our youngsters are much interested in it. I want to congratulate them on their interest in it. The varied questions that I ask here, I think it's fine. And the public, that's the thing the public needs, more information. Mm-hmm. So until May 1st, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls, episode 126, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. Oh, no, no. 
Indochina. Indochina is uh, is an issue that's worldwide. It uh, it represents the future of the world. Uh, not as such, not as just a little country, but the things that are involved: communist uh, aggression, mm. geographically, not just human people uh, as individuals. The young man with the glasses. My name is Rudolf Auction. Uh, Governor Shivers, the general, the President Eisenhower has said that communism will not necessarily be a question in the next election. Do you think it will be?